Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the podcast. We greatly appreciate your support. But before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a success story. I wanted to tell you about my friend Carl up in New Boston, Michigan. He listens to our pods every week and he heard me talking about how I might be able to help him out. So he hit me up over at SaveWithConrad.com. He just closed last month and he left us a five-star review and he had this to say. Not only did we save over $100,000 on our mortgage by removing several years off of it, he also saved us a few months of payments. In follow-up, Conrad and Steve are super helpful when I had additional questions. You can't go wrong here with Save with Conrad. Definitely worth the call to understand what your savings could be. Take Carl's word for it. He saved more than a hundred grand. What have you got to lose? Be like Carl. Go to SaveWithConrad.com right now and find out how much money you can save for free. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Why not you? Why not now? Go to SaveWithConrad.com and find out how much money you can save for free. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get a quick quote right now. Thank me later and you'll be glad you did. SaveWithConrad.com. There's no better time to say I love you and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate Stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses. But Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection that is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry, Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for more than two decades, but recently he's kicked up everything a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Looking forward to an exciting weekend. We're taping this show early, so uh, for context reasons, it's Friday morning, early Friday morning, and as soon as we finish this podcast, yours truly and Mrs. B are going to load up the Harley and head to Jackson Hole for the night, so going to drive through Yellowstone, take pictures of the Buffalo and all the fun stuff. So I'll, I'll be posting that on Twitter throughout the week. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter. If you haven't already, uh, our show is at 83 weeks. He is at E Bischoff and we're excited because today's topic is a little different. Instead of us going long form on one singular topic, which really works for Eric and I, we're going to be a little scattered today. It's a hashtag ask Eric anything. And we guys, uh, 
we got us like 400 questions here, Eric. I can't believe that's real. There's no way we'll get to them all, but dude, 400 questions. I think that means you're over kind, sir. Well, it also means that if we were try if we're going to try to cover all 400 of those questions, this would be a, this would be a 36 hour podcast. Oh, especially because it, it takes me answer. about 20 minutes a question, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> and so we true. get to the end, and I can't remember the question to start. We started out with, so yeah, it'll be a while, but we'll do the best we can and cover as many as we can. Hey, before we get going, I do have a follow up to a tweet I saw uh, as we're recording this. It was last night where someone said, "Hey, Eric, I'm going to be hanging out with Ken Patera tomorrow." Any good Ken Patera stories I should ask him about? And you quoted it and said, who is Ken Patera? <laughs> well, that was in reference to a little shoot interview clip that I saw several months back. And I thought, God, how, how the hell did I end up getting any heat with Ken Patera? I mean, I, we worked together for maybe a cup and a half of coffee. And at that time, I was just basically hauling out the garbage and keeping the plants watered at AWA. So there was no reason for him to be as nasty as he was in that shoot interview, but yeah, it just kind of, you know, I remembered it when I saw that question. So I just thought I'd have a little fun. You know, Ken Patera, every, everybody knows he was a, you know, Olympic gold medalist. I, I think it was bowling or table ping pong or some shit, but I, I do remember, you know, he, he, he was an accomplished athlete of some sort. I love you. Red ass Eric is what's best for business. Go check it out over at adfreakshows.com. We've got a couple of volumes of Eric fires back and, uh, we're ready to hit it with both barrels for Eric fires back volume three. And I've even got another fun idea, Eric, that I'm going to tell you about off air that you're really going to get a kick out of it's up your alley. But for now, let's jump to the questions. Josh Kuhn wants to know, we've always heard about Coliseum video for the WWF, but what was the WCW end of videotapes like? Well, WCW videotapes were uh, distributed through Turner Home Video, and that was, uh, you know, one of, I want to say it's unique. A a lot of big media companies um, have similar kind of setups and organizations. But, yeah, Turner Home Video um, was essentially responsible for the distribution of all of the um, WCW product. So it was kind of an in-house relationship. It wasn't a third-party relationship. Uh, it existed within our own company. And, yeah, they took all of our content and packaged it up and sold it. And we got a little we got a little sliver of that. Let's talk about uh, the AWA. Josh has an, another follow-up question that says, when Eric worked for the AWA, did he ever go to Vern's house on Lake Minnetonka and I guess this is sort of uh, a legendary house because when things weren't so great, he's talked about having to, to leverage that place. Did you ever visit Vern's Lake House? Oh, many times, many times. Um, you know, after the first year or two, I, I was in AWA. I became pretty pretty good friends with Vern and, and Greg. Um, and I would we did a lot of hunting together. Vern used to love pheasant hunting. And, uh, we would often, uh, not, not, you know, every weekend or anything like that, but during, during the fall and in the winter when hunting was at its peak, uh, we did a lot of pheasant hunting together. So I was, uh, I, I was at Burns house, uh, often, uh, and, and spent time. It was a beautiful place, you know, sad story about that place. Vern worked his whole life really to build it. And it was a magnificent, magnificent piece of property on this lake called Lake Minnetonka, which is a very 
kind of exclusive area, at least the part where Vern had his property. And it was a large piece of property. I don't know how big it was. I want to say 25 or 45 acres, something like that. But it was a beautiful park-like setting, rolling hills. His house was beautiful. Um, and that was, you know, that was Vern's, that was going to be his retirement, his legacy and everything else. I think it was paid for. He owned it outright. And then when things started turning south for him and he kept trying to infuse money into the AWA, hoping to get back to his glory days, he kept taking out, you know, mortgages and mortgaging, mortgaging and remortgaging and remortgaging the remortgage. You'd appreciate that on that property because that was the only liquid, you know, cash that he could get. And uh, eventually, <clears throat> uh, the state of Minnesota declared uh, eminent domain, where they came in and said, mm, "This is a beautiful piece of property. We'd make a beautiful park." And they they took his property from him and and paid him pennies on the dollar in terms of what it was worth. I I don't remember the real estate values back then, but it was. I think he ended up getting two or three million dollars or something like that from the state of Minnesota, which sounded like a lot, except for he was probably leveraged all of that and then some. Um, and the property was probably worth upwards of, you know, 10 times that or 15 times that. So it, kind of a sad story, but it, it's a cautionary tale. You know, you got, you know, if it's your home and and it's what you plan on on living off of for the rest of your life, you know. Be careful not to leverage yourself too much, and that's exactly what Fern did and ended up uh, losing the home after fighting the state of Minnesota for probably three, four, five years, uh, fought him in court, which <laughs> was even more expensive and cost him even more money and eventually uh, ended up having to move out of the house and into the suburbs, and that's the end of that story. But it was a beautiful home, really beautiful. Do a lighthearted question here. John Alba, friend of the show, wants to know Eric the Ken doll was no doubt one of the most handsome men in pro wrestling history, but in his opinion, who was number one? In my opinion? Yeah. Who's the best looking man in wrestling history? Well, that would be me. Besides you, that's what he's asking. Besides oh, oh, oh. Besides me? Yeah. Oh, man. That's a tough one. It's got to be The Rock, right? I mean, he's like been on the cover of all those magazines and sex. Well, and I, and oh, okay. I, I guess I, I yeah, yeah. I, I kind of looked at, you know, my era in rock was kind of the tail end of my era. But yeah, I mean, rock. He's a handsome son of a bitch, no doubt about it. Um, a little photogenic, you know. Camera kind of likes him. <laughs> <laughs> Kid's got a future. <laughs> he's probably going to be all right. Yeah, he'll be all right. Uh, interesting question here from Rajiv, friend of the show. He always brings the good questions. Eric, if you could go back in time and tell the kid with the great hair, one thing to look forward to, what would that something be? Wow. That's deep Rajiv. And you know, Rajiv is a personification. I think of the, the heightened level of, of knowledge and awareness an enlightenment as it relates to our audience. I've, I've said this many times. I think 83 weeks fans are probably the most intelligent, uh, podcast fan base you know, in, in our industry. And Rajiv, I think typifies that. So thank you, Rajiv, for asking such a deep question that I have to try to answer. So freaking early in the morning with only two and a half cups of coffee in me, uh, what would I tell a young Eric Bischoff to look forward to the most? I, I would say probably the friends that you make, in, in the business and how important to become in, in your life. 
Um, and that's really true. I don't mean to sound sappy, but you know, as you go through whatever situation I, I, I look back on now, you know, while I'm, while I was in those situations, for example, in WCW, you don't realize that some of the friends that you're making along the way are people that are going to influence your life long after your career is over or long after your influence is no longer at its peak within your industry. But those relationships, if they're good ones, um, and you're fortunate enough to have a handful of them are, are the relationships that ultimately will mean more than anything else that you've accomplished in, in, in your chosen field. So I would say, look forward to some of the great relationships you're going to establish and, and be aware that those, those, relationships can last a lifetime. Here's a great question from TJ McAloon, another friend of the show. He says, who was more valuable to WCW when they were signed from the WWF Hulk because he brought credibility to the brand macho because he brought slim Jim and then all the advertisements that followed or Holland Nash because they brought the nineties wrestling boom. God, that's a great question too. Hard to say. I mean, it, it, each in their own way, you know, obviously Hulk was the Hulk was the first big domino to fall. And, and, and once Hulk Hogan came on board and we established that credibility with advertisers and we kind of reestablished or for the first time really established credibility with our pay-per-view providers and began to leverage that relationship so that it benefited WCW more in terms of being able to negotiate a larger percentage of the, uh, of the revenue split to getting more um, advertising support from DirecTV and Dish and, and the other pay-per-view providers because they believed in Hulk Hogan so that they were willing to belly up to the bar, so to speak, and spend more money promoting the pay-per-views as well as what we were spending. So in, in so many ways, it's hard to, to, to you know look at Hulk Hogan and not recognize that as probably one of the bigger pivot points in terms of the business to business types of relationships that it affected macho man, um, right on the tail end of that. And I think, you know, slim Jim coming in in such a major way as an in program sponsor, which I don't think WCW really had at least not to the extent that slim Jim provided slim Jim was kind of an annual sponsorship, um, as opposed to one-off type sponsorships. And I think that slim Jim sponsorship also changed the way the advertising community looked at us and, and the potential that WCW had. And Hall and Nash, I mean, you know, and obviously Hogan was a big part of that. You can't just look at Hall and Nash and, and separate them necessarily from Hulk Hogan as it relates to the NWO. I don't think we really would have had one without the other in terms of the NWO. So it's hard to separate them, but I would have to give it to Hulk because I think without Hulk Hogan kind of changing so many things for WCW, not necessarily related to ratings as we've discussed so many times in the past, but just the way the industry perceived WCW, it would be hard not to give the nod to, to Hulk because none of the rest of those things, you know, Randy Savage wouldn't have happened without right. Hulk Hogan. So I, I would, I would say Hulk. I mean, when it comes to, you know, the importance of, you know, what you were trying to accomplish with WCW, that is sort of the Mount Rushmore of acquisitions, right? I mean, there's no four more important than Hogan, Savage, Hall, and Nash. Not, no, yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I could add, you know, a number of different caveats. I, I, I do think in, 
you know, every time we get into conversations like this, I, I go, yeah, but guys, what about the cruiserweight division? I mean, as a whole, mm-hmm. I, I think that the cruiserweight division had far more of a of an impact on WCW and Nitro in particular than sometimes people give it credit for. Now, granted, the NWO was a storyline. It was an angle, and obviously it was a successful one. And we're still seeing merch today. I, I got a tweet this morning as I was sucking down caffeine, getting ready for this podcast. You saw a, a, a post from one of our followers in the UK. He said, hey, Eric, I was just on my way to work, and I saw a bloat wearing an NWO shirt. You know, just want to let you know the influence, you know, NWO is still having. So, the, I mean, NWO is a visible, tangible kind of storyline. We still see the merchandise today. And, yes, that was, you know, hugely successful and, and made so much of a difference in so many different ways. But I still think the, the, the cruiserweight division and the impact that it had and still has, really, on on the product today was in many ways just as influential, just not as noticeable, I guess. Yeah, I think it's very noticeable when you look at the work. You know, you look at top guys now, whether it's AJ Styles or Kenny Omega or anybody in between. And I think the first time you started to see guys move like that in the ring, it was probably a cruiserweight match on Nitro. That's just yeah. I, I I agree with you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. The delay here sometimes jumps me, but you know, I mean, and if you take one person that I, I, I kind of personifies what the cruiserweight division actually did for the industry as a whole. You know, I think Rey Mysterio in, in nitro <clears throat> established the fact and in a long way and not just Ray, I don't want, I don't mean to not acknowledge so many other people, but if you had to pick one person th- that you could say, okay, well that person and the cruiserweight division as a whole changed the way the product was presented and still to this day is being presented. I, I don't think without Ray Mysterio and guys like him, including Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit and, and you know, the entire uh, Luchador, you know, roster and so many others. I, I don't think without that, I don't know that we would have transitioned into an era where guys that are 175, 185, 200 pounds were viable in this industry because until the cruiserweight division, they really weren't. You could, you could argue and it would be a fair argument that, yeah, but they were, you know, they were active in ECW or they were active in Japan or they were active here where they were active. Well, sure they were, but not, not in a way or in a place that affected the industry quite like the cruiserweight division did that was such a an important era and and strategy and change in the industry and i think you know a guy like ray mysterio was probably the most influential out of the group and and opened the door i guess that's the best way to say it opened the door for what we see today which is an entirely different presentation of the product than we were seeing 20 years ago and i think that's largely because of the influence of you know the, the cruiserweight division as a whole and guys like you know ray mysterio and eddie guerrero and chris benoit and dean malenko and, and others uh, henry wants to know uh, if your purchase of wcw had ultimately been successful in 2001 when you held the big bang pay-per-view would you have done a reboot with the titles like you did in april of 2000 or would the champions have remained the same? 
I, you know, who knows? It's a hypothetical question, and there's it, probably ten different correct answers given the circumstances, whatever they would have been at the time of this event that never really happened. So it's so hard to answer that. I'd like to think we we would not have tried the reboot again because a reboot of a reboot is, it feels a little tired and stupid. Uh, but who knows? You know, depending on on the situation, you know, it, hard to say. It's no surprise that these current events these days might be contributing to more stress and sleep deprivation. Well, let Ebb Sleep help. The Ebb Cool Drift is the first and only drug-free sleep solution to use continuous cooling that reduces metabolic activity in the frontal cortex, you know, your thinking part of the brain, which quiets the feeling of a racing mind and allows you to fall asleep faster and sleep better. And I got to tell you, when I first heard about Ebsleep, I wasn't so sure about this. But I'm proud to tell you that there's one by my bed right now. And uh, it's something that we share even at the household here. My wife uses it. I've used it. Everybody agrees they're sleeping better with Ebb. And by the way, here's why I believe in Ebb sleep. It's been clinically validated. 8 out of 10 users report falling asleep faster. 8 out of 10 users also report improving their overall sleep quality. And 7 out of 10 users report feeling more alert the next morning. On average, the Cool Drift Sleep System users are going to report reducing their time to fall asleep by 44%. And they say they've improved their sleep quality by 90%. But why wouldn't you try this? You can use it risk-free for 60 nights to confirm it's the solution that you've been looking for. And this was developed by a famous sleep researcher after decades of research. And the result, check this out, 100% natural, backed by science. And it's using that precision cool technology as like a proprietary cooling comfort band. It's going to contain fluid that's cooled and maintained at the ideal temperature over the course of the night to gently bring your forehead to the perfect temperature and maintain it once you fall asleep and stay asleep. This has been clinically tested. You've got to try it. I'm telling you, it is a game changer for me and my family. See, sleep is critical, and Ebb believes the solution should be natural with no harsh next-day side effects. Whether you're seeking a solution to a long-term battle with sleeplessness or looking for small improvements to operate at your peak, it's time to try the Ebb Cool Drift Sleep System. And just for our listeners, you can save $25 off your order by going to tryebb.com forward slash 83 weeks and using promo code 83 weeks at checkout. That's $25 off your order, and you can try it risk-free for 60 nights. That's tryebb.com forward slash 83 weeks. Tryebb.com forward slash 83 weeks. And use the promo code 83 weeks to save $25 today. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, Charlie Thrower wants to know, Mr. Bischoff, if Sting had wound up becoming the third man, would that have looked like what would that have looked like from an appearance standpoint? Would he have still done the black and white look that we got familiar with, with the crow version and what would Hulk have done in that same scenario? So we've sort of talked before, Hey, the backup plan, if Hulk said no, was we had Sting lying in wait and he could have done it, but we never really sort of went down that path of what would that have looked like? But I assume that 
Hulk Hogan becomes the flag bearer for WCW, much like Sting actually was. And then maybe there was a collision course with Hogan and Sting, with Sting as the bad guy. And in that ulterior universe, Hogan's in the red and yellow, and Sting's still in the black and white face paint. Would that be the route, maybe? No, I, I, again, another hypothetical, and it's hard to say what would have happened, but I, number one, I don't, we, we would have never seen Crow Sting. Crow Sting evolved out of the story as it was unfolding with the NWO, including Hulk Hogan, in that dark kind of period where the NWO was trying to take over WCW and Sting being the standard bearer for WCW was really the guy at the time to kind of take up that role. But that character, the Sting Crow type character, that conversation that we had where Scott Hall really just brought that character to, character to life for us very vividly in the way he described it. I just, that conversation would have never happened if the story would have played out differently and, and sting would have been in the NWO and Hulk would have been the standard bear for WCW. So I, I don't think we, we would not have seen the crow character. I'm, I'm sure of that. Um, we probably would have seen, I guess, you know, Sting, if you go back and, you know, look at some of the videos, Sting was already kind of migrating away from the, you know, the, the, the platinum dyed, you know, crew cut face paint, you know, colorful marching band looking character that, that Sting was. I don't mean that as a shot. It just was what it was. He was already moving away from that. I think we would have seen a more organic kind of street version of, of, Sting, um, hard to imagine what that would have looked like, uh, but it would have been similar in tone, I guess, to Scott and Kevin. You know, it, it would not have been a a gimmick character. It would have been a reality based character based on Steve Borden's real personality. Um, so I think it would be more just kind of a a, a, a street version of of Sting. Um, hard to imagine how that whole story would have played out. I don't think the audience would have bought Hulk Hogan as a standard bearer for WCW just because of his history. He came right. in from WWE and there was a fair amount of resistance to Hulk Hogan among the fan base just as a kid because WCW fans were very loyal WCW fans and WWE fans were very loyal WWE fans. And I think that Hulk Hogan coming over to sing and trying to kind of replace Ric Flair in the eyes of the fan as the face of WCW or in this case, as we're discussing, replacing Sting as the future of WCW. I think the fans would have just shit all over that. I don't think they would have bought it for any length of time. It might have might have been an okay angle for three or four months, but I don't think it would have had any legs. But it's hard it's hard to imagine that. But I, to answer the question, I think we've got a we would have gotten a very organic kind of street version of the Sting character. Uh, here's a fun question. And, and I don't know, uh, I don't know that we've ever talked about it. Josh Kuhn wants to know, you've said on the TNA episodes that you didn't think Mike Tanay was the right fit as the play-by-play -play man when Eric was there, but did you ever bring up maybe Tony Schiavone coming in as a play-by-play -play man? I think him and Taz would have been great in that era. So we're to give context again, we're not talking about WCW. We're talking about, you know, your 2010 or so run with TNA. You really liked what uh, Tanae brought to Nitro as sort of a, a color guy or an analyst, but not necessarily in the driver's seat doing play-by-play. -play. Meanwhile, Tony Schiavone, wrestling's in his rearview mirror. He's calling baseball and calling football and calling basketball. 
hypothetically, was it ever discussed? Hey, what about Shivani when you were in TNA? It, it came up a time or two <clears throat> or three, but, it, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, uh, but it, it's the truth. So I'll lay it out there. Um, I, I misjudged Tony, uh, and, and Tony's feelings about the wrestling industry. I was under the impression that Tony was, I don't want to say bitter, but he had just moved on and right. he wasn't really <clears throat> interested in the product anymore. And he had no passion for the product anymore. And I, I just assumed that's the way he felt. And this is what I'm embarrassed about. I should have picked up the phone and asked him because I might've had a different impression had I done that, but I didn't. That's, that was a mistake on my part by at least not putting it out there and hearing from Tony himself, as opposed to being told what others who, who, you know, we're closer to Tony may have suggested to me. So the answer is yes, it came up. Um, the embarrassing follow-up to that answer is I didn't even bother to pick up the phone to call and ask how he would have felt. And that was a mistake on my part. Well, how about that? Some fucking honesty on a wrestling podcast. Uh, chip Maxey wants to know, hypothetically speaking, had Eric not fired Steve Austin torn triceps or not. Do you think Steve would have been a candidate for the reformation of the horseman in October of 95? If so, whose spot would he have taken Hillman's or Benoit's? That is kind of an interesting question because once upon a time, Austin did, uh, have a rising star in WCW as a singles, uh, you know, he had been the U S champ and, and obviously a television champ, but he'd also been positioned as a tag champ with Brian Pillman and Brian's going to join the horseman. Even though they had feuded with the horsemen before, I could kind of see that. Do you think that would have ever been discussed? I mean, I can see it too. I mean, I mean, if it, if we were going to cast a movie and retell this story in the form of a movie, and we were going to cast for characters to to play the four horsemen, and Steve Austin's name was on the list, I think Steve as a four horseman probably would have been a better casting than Pillman has nothing to do with talent or anything like that. Again, it's just feeling and, and vibe and look and chemistry. I think chemistry wise, the fit would have been a little bit better with, with, with Austin as a horseman. I could see that very easily in my head. So I'd, I'd probably go, uh, yeah, Steve would have been a great, part of the four horsemen and, and probably would have been the, the focal point of it, you know, because of his ability on the microphone. Let's, uh, let's do another sort of fantasy question. Popvinyls.com, friend of the show wants to know if you infusion did buy WCW, how much had you actually prepared? Did you have mock-ups for new logos done? Uh, and was it just the image that is below here? Would you have been an on-camera character or just behind the scenes? And do you think there perhaps is enough meat on the bone for a big bang episode here on the show. And the logo he references below, it's got you standing in the front Goldberg with his hands on the hips in the background. And then there is a little cutout that says the big bang WCW. I know for sure that that particular graphic uh, is something WWE made, but that big bang logo on the left, uh, that ran inside the WCW magazine, but the photo of you that's featured in this particular graphic that, that he posts is actually you during your WWE run, but, but the actual big bang 
sort of one page, one sheeter that was in the magazine. Did you have any of those logistics mapped out? We know you talked about, Hey, we might run the show weekly in Vegas and make it an attraction at a casino, but did you have, and, and maybe you were going to talk to a Rob Van Dam. Maybe you were going to take, talk to a Joey styles. What else had you sort of laid the groundwork for before the thing blew up? Uh, quite a few questions in there. Um, there's not enough meat on the bone with, with regard to the big bang, um, to have a show. And as a matter of fact, that, that, that portion of this show would, would be about three minutes long, um, because we were at the stage of, of, of the acquisition that we were in when we found out that there wasn't going to be one. I mean, all of our focus and energy was on the business side of things, not on the creative side of things. So there was no new, there was no new artwork. There were no new logos drafted. The Big Bang was something that we jumped into because we had to, uh, well in advance of of when that pay per view would have been scheduled. But the the artwork and any retooling of logos and things like that was something that would have happened after the acquisition had been completed. Keeping in mind that we would have been off the air for a couple for a couple months. That was the plan at least going into this so that after the acquisition was completed then we'd have a few months to kind of gear up from a creative perspective so there was no real creative in place either from a storytelling point of view or or angles or anything like that we were focusing on the talent the roster that we wanted to keep that we could afford to keep because you know there would have been a whole new budget kind of in in place and and we would have been rebuilding so a lot of things would have changed with regard to talent, but storylines hadn't been laid out. Artwork hadn't been laid out. None of that stuff had, had really been started other than we knew that we had to get it done within a, probably a 60 or 90 day window to, to get the ball rolling. Uh, Brian has a fun question for you that I don't think we've ever talked about when fans were throwing garbage in the ring during the height of the NWO, especially with the lights being down during an interview, how hard was it to dodge the debris? For the most part, the no selling of it if it got close. It, it wasn't hard um, at all because we didn't encourage it, but we loved it. You know what I mean? And and there was, you know, with a, a, a small handful of exceptions, I mean, there were some people, especially when things got really hot, when people start throwing quarters, you know, from the cheats, cheap seats, you know, a uh, hundred yards away and they're tossing quarters down into the ring, believe it or not, you know, a quarter coming at you from that distance, if it hits, you can actually, you know, do a little damage. So when people started throwing quarters and half dollars and things like that into the ring or, or full bottles of beer, in one case, I remember one zooming by my face probably two inches from my head. Um, you know, that kind of stuff you, you had to be aware of, but for the most part, you know, people are throwing, you know, hot dog wrappers and, you know, half empty cups of Coke or Pepsi, whatever they were drinking, or in some cases tobacco spit, which was never oh. fun. Yeah. That was like the worst. Whenever you get hit with tobacco spit, it was like, Oh God, you just wanted a gag right there. But for the most part, you know, that didn't happen too often. For the most part, it wasn't hard at all. And the no selling of it, that, that just made it better. I mean, that just encouraged people to do it more because they wanted to be the ones to get your attention. So it, it was kind of fun. I, I enjoyed that when that happened. Don't throw so, things. So, sounds, sounds weird, doesn't it? No. I really enjoyed when the fans threw garbage at us. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, as a, as a PSA here, when things get back to normal, don't throw things in the ring. My goodness. 
No, it's a different time. Don't want to do that. All right, Derek Bergen wants to know, did Eric ever enjoy the Universal Orlando theme parks while with TNA or his thoughts on the parks and the nearby City Walk area? We've heard Bruce talk about, oh, man, it was the best job I ever had. You know, I do a little wrestling, and then on break, I go ride the rides. I, I don't know that I see Eric Bischoff necessarily doing that. No, I, I mean, you know me, Conrad, you've gotten to know me over the last couple of years. I don't like crowds, which is kind of a weird thing to say for a guy who's been in the business of drawing crowds or attempting to for 30 years. Uh, but that's business, you know, and, and while I'm participating in business, I love crowds, but in my off time, I, I prefer not to be anywhere near crowds. Um, no so shit, no, I didn't walk around the theme park. I didn't, you know, I think when we first started shooting shows at Disney MGM studios in the very, very beginning, I was so fascinated with the parks, the MGM, or excuse me, yeah, the Disney MGM studios and, and all that, that, you know, and I had little kids at the time, so it was a little different for me. I was kind of experiencing it through my kids' eyes, you know, Epcot Center, the first time I ever saw Epcot Center, I was like, wow, this is amazing, and, you know, the fireworks at night and all that, so I, I enjoyed it for the first probably trip or two to Disney, but after that, no, I, I, I didn't enjoy it just because I don't like being confined in a place where there's just so many people all of the time that you can't get away from them. So I'm, I'm a little different than Bruce and that. I've never, never really enjoyed rides, you know, just even when I was a little kid, you know, going to the amusement park and, you know, going on a roller coaster, some of the crazy rides that were popular at the time, just wasn't my thing. I wasn't afraid of it. I just didn't enjoy it. I just go to look at chicks. Oh gosh! There you go. Well, when you're a te- when you're a teenager, you go where you go where the action was, and you know when I was fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old, man, the action was at the amusement park. So I'd go and hang out, but I'd just like eat hot dogs and look at girls. Teenager hell! Uh, most of my friends were doing that when they were thirty. Uh, Mister Nobody wants to know why do you think a wrestling show hasn't gone to a streamer like Netflix and succeeded? It seems dropping a weekly show on that would make it easy to circumvent sponsor concerns and you could be a little edgier. Well, yeah, except for streaming didn't exist 20 years ago. So the option wasn't really available. Well, I don't think he means back then. I think he wonders why do you think it hasn't happened now? You know, with the success of Hulu and Netflix and all these other streaming services, it seems like there's another one every day from peacock to hbo max and these are ma- these are big business and they're investing major money in projects wrestling has been a bona fide licensed superstar you know why why not why not take a chance at uh at streaming wrestling shows? yeah i mean that's a very good idea if we're talking about present day yeah you know as an as, as an option or a strategy for an existing wrestling company I, I mean, I think that's a really good idea. And I've asked myself that same question because wrestling has proven to your point, you know, that you just made, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to reiterate, you know, wrestling has proven since the beginning of television time to be m- one of the most consistently successful forms of entertainment in all of television, with the exception of probably news, local or national. And, and the fan base for wrestling, as we know, um, is extremely loyal. And I, I don't know how to 
compare or contrast, you know, loyalty amongst different wrestler sports genres or entertainment genres. But, you know, NASCAR fans, we all know, are extremely loyal. You know, um, NBA fans are, you know, each sport, each form of televised entertainment, sport or entertainment or both here, um, have a very loyal fan base. I, for me, obviously, it's, you know, a skewed perspective because I'm not in those other industries and I have spent time in the wrestling industry. But my take is that wrestling fans are probably as or more loyal than the fan base of any other form of sports slash entertainment. It's, they're just, they can't get enough. I mean, our podcast is a success based on that fact. We're talking about things every week that happened 20 years ago. When you first called me, when we first had our first conversation about, serious conversation about doing this, my big concern, and what I said to you, if you remember, was, Conrad, this uh, sounds great, but I don't think anybody wants to hear about the Monday Night Wars. It's been done to death. And you were convinced that done right, um, there was still an appetite for it. And and I, I was willing to to go with your instinct on that. And you proved to be right. And now looking back at that, it's because people are just – wrestling fans are just so loyal. And they yeah. can't get enough of the behind the scenes, the business of the business or the stories, you know, the not necessarily my kind of in the weeds take on it, but the stories and, and the history and the characters and the – all the things that happened 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, they still love to hear and engage in those conversations. And I think it's because of the loyalty that I was describing with wrestling fans and how pronounced it is in this form of entertainment. And given that the audience is so loyal, it's surprising to me that it hasn't happened yet because those are subscription-based platforms. And I'm I'm surprised, and it, you know what? Who's to say it doesn't happen? You know, there there's more and more streaming platforms evolving over time. Um, obviously, WWE has gone with their own kind of over the top network. You know, they own their own network as opposed to streaming on somebody else's. But that might be an option and a viable one for someday because, relatively speaking, wrestling is fairly inexpensive. That's another reason why it's worked for so long in television and has been able to kind of sustain the ups and downs of, of, of people's, you know, kind of entertainment appetite over the decades. Because it's relatively inexpensive compared to other forms of entertainment. You know, you look at a, 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 a Netflix movie. I don't know what the budgets are. I don't want to make it sound like I have inside information. I don't. But I'm just based on kind of what I've learned over the last year or two or three. You know, you're looking at $60, $80 million budgets for one two-hour movie. Or not even two hours. You know, an average movie is probably a hundred and hundred and eighteen minutes. Hundred and twenty-five minutes is probably the target that you shoot for. Maybe a hundred and thirty minutes in some cases. It's just a little, you know, a little under, a little over two hours for you know sixty, seventy, eighty million dollars, and that that doesn't include the really big budget movies that you see coming out of Netflix now who have budgets, you know, and I'm assuming Hulu and, and the others are similar. You know, some of these budgets are $100, $140, 150000000 million a movie. You, you can produce a lot of wrestling for $150 bucks. 
And while you may not have that, holy crap, what an amazing movie kind of wow factor that lasts for a month or two, what you do has have is a very loyal, sustainable fan base that will keep generating money in the long term pretty consistently over time. So there's a trade-off there. But, you know, maybe it'll happen someday. I don't know. I hope so. You know, more options are better. There's no better time to say I love you. And the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say, I hate stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step. Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection. That is no hassle, no risk expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry. Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for more than two decades. But recently, he's kicked up everything a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. All right, here's another one. This one is about uh, Goldberg Hogan. This comes from Chip. He says, had the Goldberg Hogan match not happened at the Georgia Dome, when do you think would have been the logical time to pull the trigger on Goldberg being anointed as the man? Halloween Havoc? Or Starcade. Oh, just given my affection for the event known as Halloween Havoc, I would have, I would have, I would have done it there. I still think Halloween Havoc, even though it wasn't the the, the kind of legacy tentpole event that Starcade was, because of the history that Starcade had and its association with Dusty Rhodes and all that and the Crockett's, um, Halloween Havoc was still like I kind of think from a perception point of view the most the most important pay-per-view of the year so I, I would have probably done it there i just did an episode with bruce pritchard about great american bash Show five and one of the questions from a listener was why did wcw have great american bash that interested wwe but not halloween havoc like why would the wwe be so selective about which brands to pick up and then you know they even brought around starcade even though they made it a house show why no Halloween Havoc? And Bruce's answer was Halloween is not a global thing. It doesn't have the global appeal that some of the other shows do. It just doesn't translate well globally. And then he caught himself and realized, well, then again, neither does Great American Bash. Why do you think maybe the WWF never picked up Halloween Havoc as a brand? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, to Bruce's point, yeah, I mean, Halloween is kind of a, a, a domestic U.S. and I guess it happens in Canada as well. But, you know, internationally, look, one of the reasons that wrestling is so successful is because it's so successful internationally, not just here in the United States. A good chunk of the revenue, you know, if you look at WWE's SEC quarterly filings, a good chunk of the revenue is international. And one of the reasons international works is because the world still, even even in today's environment, um, when it comes to entertainment properties, anything American is hot. And a unique holiday 
a unique American holiday, especially one like Halloween. It's, you know, people dressed up crazy and, and acting crazier um, is a very attractive property internationally or phenomenon internationally. So I, I, I would disagree with Bruce that it wouldn't have an appeal internationally. I think because it is a uniquely American holiday, it might have had even more appeal than some other pay-per-views that didn't have that kind of uh, branding, you know, immediate, you know, branding is, is, is an American Halloween event. So I, I would I would disagree with that as to why WWE does it. Who knows? You know, I I don't know what their October pay-per-view is uh, off the top of my head. Um, perhaps the analysis was, look, do we shit can this thing that we've been building as our October pay-per-view every year? Or do we replace it with something that somebody else came up with? I think there's a natural tendency within WWE to really protect their original intellectual property and not try to leverage the intellectual property of others. I just think that's kind of a philosophical perspective that maybe doesn't get discussed openly, but still there. And I think it would probably be that more than anything else. Uh, fun follow-up question of a different variety here from Joseph. He says, who would win in a karate match? You or the three-time black belt hall of famer, Bruce Pritchard? Well, I think we'd both win on that one because that one would last for about 45 seconds and we'd both, <laughs> both start laughing at each other and head to the bar and forget about it. <laughs> and by the way, the answer is, uh, Eric, uh, Bruce's contribution to become a three-time Karate Black Belt Hall of Famer was three individual donation checks. Sure. Are you kidding me? No, no, wait a minute. I did see it. I was at Bruce's house, you know, right before I left Stanford. I had dinner uh, with Bruce. Lori and I were over there and had dinner with Bruce and Steph and uh, checked out their brand new home uh, as we were <laughs> as we were packing our shit to move. And Bruce actually showed me some pictures. So Bruce did train. Now, he may not have, I don't know if he got his black belt or not. He, I, I assumed he did. I didn't know that his his hall of fame credibility was based on contributions, although that makes sense. Um, but I know he, he legitimately trained. I just don't know how good he ever was. By the way, the, uh, that was a weird time in our lives when you were leaving Stanford and he had literally just bought the biggest, nicest house he'd ever owned in Stanford. And, uh, Stephanie wanted to invite you guys over for dinner and Bruce called me laughing. And he said, I feel so bad. I don't have anybody to call and talk to about this, but Stephanie just asked me why we couldn't invite the Bischoffs over for dinner. And I said, well, why can't you? And he starts laughing. He's like, because I'm an asshole. I'm staying and he's leaving. This is going to be awkward as shit. I still want to hang out with him, but it's weird. Like, Hey, uh, we're unpacking these boxes. If y'all want to take these with you, he's like, we can't fucking I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, don't offer the boxes. He's like, that's what Stephanie wanted to do. Invite him to dinner and say, here, take these boxes with you. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this is the worst thing ever. You know, it's, it's, it, it's funny. I, I knew, you know, when Bruce invited us over, I said, oh, that'd be great. Yeah. We're going to, we, we didn't leave Stanford immediately. You know, like I had three months or 
four months or whatever left uh, on, on our um, our lease with the apartment. And it was no urgency. It's not like, okay, I'm done with WWE. I got to jump in my truck and drive home. It was like, okay. You know, I said to Lori, well, what do we want to do now? <laughs> I mean, I got nothing on the agenda. I kind of shit canned everything that I had going on for the most part, with the exception of one or two things in the podcast. But we could do the podcast from anywhere. Um so we decided to hang out in Stanford for a couple of weeks and then head down to Florida and spend the holidays with the kids. But, you know, Bruce, you know, invited us over because, you know, he wanted to show us a new house. But when we first sat down, Bruce felt so bad. And I felt bad for Bruce feeling bad because I didn't feel bad. I wasn't like happy, but I, and I wasn't angry or anything. I just said, yeah, it is what it is, but let's have a couple beers and some dinner. <laughs> let's cook some good food and have a blast. But I could tell Bruce was – it was awkward for Bruce, and it shouldn't have been. I tried to make it clear to him, you know, and and even to this day, it's, it wasn't Bruce. Right. You know, Bruce didn't make the call. Well, that, <laughs> that was my thing Bruce to him. I'm bad. like, dude, you're – he's like, this is going to be awkward. I mean, he's one of my best friends, but just – I feel like a piece of shit. I'm like, dude, you don't need to get well, he, out of here. Well, he probably assumed I felt bad. Right. Because we, we, we didn't we didn't really have much of a chance to have a conversation. No, I got let go and I think the following weekend or shortly thereafter I was hanging out at Bruce's house for dinner and in those in that week or two weeks in between, you know, Bruce was ripping and roaring. I mean, he didn't have to, we didn't have time to talk and I didn't see him. So I think he was he probably felt or anticipated that I was going to be depressed or sad or angry or something. And, you know, nothing was further from the truth. I was just looking forward to a good meal and a cold beer. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. Uh, Stan wants to know, do you think that having so many wrestlers that all have a similar move set and use the same moves, regardless of their spot on the card is hurting the ability to really highlight potential stars, not a knock, but it seems like everyone can and will do everything. I think that's an interesting question because once upon a time it did feel like guys had big, varied move sets and now it all sort of just runs together and everybody wants to show you how athletic they are and you know, all the cool stuff they can do, but that probably does make some of the stuff less unique. Man, that's a really good observation. And th that's a deep, you know, we could talk about that, that question and, and my response to it. That could be a one hour show, but suffice to answer it here. And maybe we'll dive into this some, somewhere down the line, but there's a couple things going on in that question and the answer. My immediate kind of just visceral reaction is absolutely. That's true. But then I ask myself, well, why is it true? Why is it happening? And it's really the why of it that, allows you to kind of get into the weed, so to speak, and really understand from a broader perspective, what's going on in the industry and how it's different today than it was 20 years ago. I think part of the challenge today is there's so much wrestling out there, so many hours of it. You got three, four, five, six, seven hours coming out of WWE in prime time. Every week, seven hours of prime time wrestling action every week, just out of WWE. Now throw AEW into the mix. And if you, you know, if you're a hardcore, just can't get enough wrestling, you've, you know, you've got, uh, impact to, to watch and, and other, you know, smaller independents to watch. And when you have that much content 
out there, it's inevitable that you're going to see so much of the same type of, whether it's, you know, skill sets or presentation or whatever, move sets, call it whatever you want, finishes, where everybody's doing everything. And I, I think the oversaturation of the product in general has led to the dilution of the individual type of characteristics that wrestlers can can enjoy and have and call their own um, because just, there's just so much of it out there. It's bound to be repetitive. Um, I think that's a big part of it. You know, wrestling to an extent has become a victim in a sense of its own success. It, success meaning, you know, because there's so much of it out there and available and it's profitable for the networks that carry it uh, to one degree or another. Um, therefore, there's more of it. Well, when there's more of it, you see more of all of it. And the more you see of all of it, the less distinguishable it becomes. Um so that's the biggest problem. And I, but I do think it is one, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's one of the challenges that I have, you know, watching the product today is, and I've, I've talked about this before and I have to be careful when I say these things because I can not be hundred percent clear sometimes. Um, diversity, I think is such an important element of the product today. That's, that's hurting. And I don't mean in terms of race, religion, creed, and all the other things that people normally associate with diversity, but I mean diversity in characters, diversity in movesets, diversity in finishes. Because when you have those unique elements that people identify with individual wrestlers, consciously or subconsciously, the audience anticipates, well, what's going to happen, you know, when, you know, my favorite wrestler throws their favorite finish or their favorite move, or is this finish going to be able to, you know, be more successful than, you know, this opponent's finish, you know, you don't have that anymore. And, and when you don't have that, you don't have anticipation. You don't have anything to think about. You're now just watching the spectacle for the sake of the spectacle. You're watching the athleticism for the sake of the athleticism without necessarily the, the element of emotion that really should be behind, or excuse me, the, the element of anticipation that should really be behind what you are watching. If that makes sense, it's pretty early in the morning and I'm pretty light on caffeine here. I hope I'm clear about that. But I do think the repetitive nature of it, uh, of the movesets that we see so many people doing, the fact that very few people have unique finishes anymore um, the way they used to, um, all of that kind of dilutes you know, the ability to create anticipation that people have for individual wrestlers and their movesets compared to other wrestlers or their opponents and their movesets. All of a sudden now, it's just like one, I'm going to use the term car wreck or car crash, and I don't mean it derisively, but it's just like one big demolition derby, a really cool demolition derby. Don't get me wrong. Some of the coolest demolition derbies, human demolition derbies we've ever seen, but that's different than the anticipation that you can create by having unique movesets and unique finishes that people can look forward to seeing either being successful or unsuccessful in a matchup. Whew, that was a long-winded answer. I apologize. This episode is brought to you by Fracture. Fracture turns your digital images into beautiful glass prints. 
That's right. They print your photos directly on glass, transforming your memories into handcrafted frameless prints. And I got to tell you, I was blown away when this showed up at my front door. Uh, now I've got one for, well, Tony Schiavone's podcast. What happened when somehow they sent me Tony Schiavone's glass print and Tony's like, Hey, I think you got a package for me. And I'm like, Nope, this thing is mine. I'm hanging it in the studio. You got to order another one, but I got good news for you. Tony fracture is going to hook you up. Stay tuned, Tony. Cause I know you listen to 83 weeks. Eric's got one of these, by the way. So does Jim Ross. Everybody is loving this. It's uh, like a piece of art. And it's special to us because it's our podcast logos and it's going to go in our studios. We're so excited about it. And Fracture can help you focus on the moments that matter most by turning your favorite memories into beautiful glass prints. Fracture prints directly on durable glass with soft edges for safe handling. And these prints come in multiple sizes. By the way, no frame is required. And each print comes with a 100% happiness guarantee. If for any reason you don't love your print, Fracture will make it right. The glass prints are also unique gifts for your friends and family that they'll never forget. These Fracture prints just look incredible. You really need to see them to believe it. Upload your photo right now at FractureMe.com forward slash 83 weeks to print your photo on glass today. We've got a special deal just because you listen to this. Listen up, Tony. You're not getting this one back. When you visit FractureMe.com slash 83 weeks, and enter promo code 83 weeks, you get 20% off your order. Seriously, this is really cool. Go see it for yourself right now. That's FractureMe.com slash 83 weeks, and then put our promo code 83 weeks, and you'll get 20% off your fracture glass print. That's FractureMe.com slash 83 weeks, and the promo code again is 83 weeks. You save 20% and you get something so cool delivered to your house. And we thank Fracture for sponsoring the podcast. Seriously, go check it out. FractureMe.com forward slash 83 weeks. Chip wants to know, how long would one of those old, the following announcement, NWO promos have taken to shoot? Was it done on a nitro day? How hands-on were you with those? How much direction was giving during the shoots? Was it originally intended for quick cuts and sound bites and then black and white? It was originally... Um, created we, we we started that you know that if you go back and you look at some of the early nwo promos you know with the black and white really fast cut you know edited together in, in a very unique way at, at that time and i don't think even since we've seen anybody I, i've seen a few people try it and and kind of um uh, let's just say they were inspired by some of those original nwo promos but th- those promos evolved out of necessity I, I remember one of the first, you know, promos that we shot with Hulk and Kevin and Scott. You know, you you know, you're a, a good a good promo, minute thirty, two minutes if you've got something really important to say. Well, you get three people in a in a promo, especially people like Hulk Hogan, who's used to having that microphone all to himself. Scott Hall, who when inspired and he was, he was inspired often back then. Um, he was a talker, you know, he wanted his mic time. Kevin, you know, wanted to get in there. They were kind of competing, not in a, not in a selfish way. You know, no, 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 there was no heat. There was none of that, you know, petty bullshit behind the scenes, but these guys, you know, they wanted to outdo each other. Well, you got three guys that had the power on the mic. It was Scott Hall, Kevin Nash and Hulk Hogan. Um, 
And you say, okay, guys, we're going to shoot a promo. And they're trying to one-up each other the whole time. You know, the first couple times we shot that, we went, okay, this isn't going to work. How do we make this work? And then and I think it was Neil Pruitt had a lot to do with it. Craig Leathers did. I was involved in it as well. You know, we said, well, wait a minute. Let's just, let's just shoot it and let it run. These guys want to take five minutes, take five minutes, and let's go back and edit it and treat it so that we can we can take the best elements of it and try to keep it to a minute 30 or, or two minutes. So it, it, it that whole NWO quick edit kind of grainy film, all of that was born out of necessity as opposed to, you know, somebody sitting behind the scenes and say, hey, I've got a vision. What if we start doing our promos like this? It wasn't that. It was more like, holy shit, how do we make any sense out of this 12-minute promo <laughs> without killing the rest of the show? And 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 then we came up with that edit form. So um, did that answer the question? I just yeah. lost myself again. Oh, absolutely. But you guys, you know, once you're up and going with these, you're doing them usually – the day of a show, like on a nitro, just earlier in the afternoon or something. Well, no, 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 no. We're talking about two different things. I mean, the, you know, the Neil Pruitt, the voice, the following announcement is brought to you by the NWO. That was something that you know, Neil probably shot once or twice, and we were able to reuse. Um, so that was kind of like in the can, and we used it often. But the individual promos, talking about specific time, date, storyline, things like that, those were shot. You know, sometimes they were shot a week in advance and we would, we'd have a week to kind of go post produce them. Some of them were shot day of, and we'd have to rush to produce them to get that look and that NWO feel and that quick, you know, once we did it a few times and we learned how to do it and we could start feeding the talent lines and actually directing them and producing them to create better kind of NWO style, black and white, quick edit promos. Eventually we were able to produce those much faster, but in the beginning it was, it was a week of uh, post-production as we got better at it. And we realized we kind of had gold. We started producing a According to what we wanted, you know, them to end up looking like, and then they became much faster and we could produce them day of fun question here that, uh, well, it's going to get some people talking. The real Chris Hughes wants to know what's your opinion of Michael Cole as a play by play announcer. I think this comes to us today because Arn and I have just talked about this. Uh, Bruce and I have just talked about this. Michael Cole has an unenviable task of Vince McMahon is in his ear and he's not able to really just call what's on the monitor. We have seen a couple of shows that were on the network that Vince wasn't producing and it was just uh, Michael Cole calling what he sees, sort of old school traditional wrestling announcer. But that's not really what Vince expects. And I think a lot of fans who sort of don't love Michael Cole's work I don't know that they really are giving Michael a fair shake, but that's just my opinion. What's your opinion? I know I agree with you wholeheartedly, and 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 then some. You know, yeah, yeah. Mrs. B just brought me more caffeine. Thank you, Mrs. B. She's so sweet. Even early in the morning, she's sweet. It's hard to imagine, but it's true. Um, I know I agree. I, I don't think you can judge play-by-play -play or color commentary, for that matter, in WWE and assign that judgment to the individual who's performing. You know, they're, they, they are, they, in this case, Michael Cole, he is 
heavily, heavily produced. He's doing what he's asked to do. And he's obviously doing it very well because he's been in that position a long time. So he's delivering exactly what the guy who signs his checks wants him to deliver. So I applaud him for doing that. That's your job. When you take that job, when you agree to do that job, you know what the rules are. You know what the process is. You know what the parameters are. And you sign up for it. You do the best you can. And Cole does that. Now, what do I agree with that approach to play-by-play? I've said it a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred more. I absolutely do not. I think play-by-play is one of the missing in, in WWE. Not so much in, in AEW. I, I feel strongly about, you know, JR and Tony uh, as a team. Part of that is because of my relationship with them and having worked with them and kind of the, the, the the meatloaf and mashed potatoes comfort food for my brain element that Tony and JR present. And I know that, but still the style of play by play is much different. I, I I've said this before. It's one of the reasons why I thought Michael Tanay was a great color commentator and a not so great play by play guy is because play by play is a different art form. And I love hearing traditional play by play. Tell me what's going on. Describe now. Tell me what's going on. Describe to me what's going on, and and in a way that if I if if I was blind, if I if I didn't have eyesight, but I loved professional wrestling, paint that picture for me in my mind, because it enhances even people who don't have sight issues when you describe it that way. You're you're creating a sense of being there. And, and and seeing it live, even though you're watching on TV, you feel like you're in the venue. That's the way it should be. A good play-by-play guy should be able to tell you what the venue smells like. Can you feel, smell the fresh popcorn? You know, what, can, can you sense the excitement? Describe to me how that feels as a viewer at home. Because I'm sitting on a fucking chair, you know, and I'm probably looking at my a mobile device checking my messages at the same time. But if you can draw me into that arena by describing what's going on, as opposed to, you know, repeating lines that someone else is feeding me, that doesn't really have anything to do with the viewing experience at home. That's, that's a big thing to me. That's a big, and I'm not articulating this. Well, I, I, I know what I feel, feel and I'm not necessarily conveying it as clearly as I wish I could right now, but I think the, a play-by-play person's ability to transport the viewer from their home into that arena is an art form unto itself. And I think the way WWE produces their play-by-play approach doesn't provide that opportunity. And I think that's seriously lacking. So I think you know I think the, I I think Michael Cole's doing an amazing job. I could I couldn't do on my best day if I ever had one as a play-by-play guy. And I think I used to be pretty good at it in in my own way. I wasn't Tony Schiavone. I certainly wasn't Jim Ross, but I I got pretty decent at it, largely because of the way I was trained by Vern Gagne. Um, but on my very best day. I couldn't carry Michael Cole's bags to the arena. He has the ability. He has the ability. He's just not produced in a way that allows us to see it. Let's talk about Russ, a great friend of the show. He asked a question about Ricky Steamboat. 
Can you discuss what happened at the end of Ricky Steamboat's run in WCW in 94? Wikipedia says he was injured and received his release by FedEx. Is this what happened? Uh, what did you think of Steamboat and what he brought to the company at the time? Number one, I, I really appreciated Ricky Steamboat as, an, as a performer, as a professional, and as a human being. Ricky was, uh, for me, now I worked with Ricky for a very brief period of time. You know, we worked, we were in WCW together, you know, when I was an announcer and, and even shortly thereafter, once I got into management, I had occasion to interface with Ricky and always found all of those discussions very productive, very positive, very professional. And obviously, I, you know, admired his work uh, as a performer. Part of the issue with Ricky, as often happens, wasn't really, I mean, when things got difficult with Ricky, wasn't because of Ricky, it was because of Ricky's wife at the time. You know, sometimes when you have your wife, especially a wife that's been around the business for a while and knows some of the other, you know, principles and, you know, Ricky's ex-wife was, was very familiar with the wrestling business or thought she was, um, she, she was the issue, not Ricky. Uh, and that, that's what became problematic. And you just get to a point where you can't reason with someone or rationalize with someone, or, you know, they're dealing from a perspective of fear or anger or anxiety or whatever the case was, or thinking they know more than they really do. Um, and when you let your wife handle your business, sometimes things blow up. And that was the case with Ricky, but it was, it hadn't, it was not a reflection on, from my perspective, it was not a reflection on Ricky at all. It was just couldn't deal with his crazy ex-wife any longer. John Paul wants to know, do you think an off season would benefit the pro wrestling business? And if so, did you ever seriously consider it in WCW? I, you know, I don't know. No, we never considered it. Let me answer that one first. That one's easy. The other one is speculative and hypothetical, which is always harder. Um, I, I don't think it would really work because you'd be restarting you'd be restarting your brand and I know it works in sports, but sports is different. Sports is not sports entertainment. Sports is not essentially story driven the way that, that wrestling is. I think the strength of wrestling is its consistency and its proximity to its viewers, not only in terms of being available on television every week, but also the touring component, as we've discussed before, because of the touring component that, Historically, up until you know COVID came along, the touring the touring component allows your favorite television characters to basically come to your hometown and hang out with you in your backyard for two and a half or three hours, maybe once a month or once every ever every other month. That creates a relationship with with the viewing audience that no other form of entertainment enjoys, other than sports, to a degree. Um, so I, I, I think that's one of the, the stronger aspects of professional wrestling is the fact that you feel like you know the stars and your favorite wrestlers. You feel like you know them differently than you may know actors or actresses from scripted or even non-scripted shows or, or even sports. So I, I don't think it would work. I think you'd be at a, you'd be restarting and rebuilding and rebranding, you know, once a year, twice a year. And I, I, I just don't think it would work. I could be wrong about that. It's a hypothetical. I'm sure. 
there are other smart people out there that can think of ways to make that work and maybe make it work better, I guess, than what we're seeing now. And maybe that'll have to happen. Who knows? I mean, the future is so up in the air right now in so many different ways. You know, here we're into it's all it's August for all intents and purposes. And do we know for sure if we're going to have college football? We don't no. really know. No, I don't think um, so. I know they're kind of kicking off the NBA season at the end of this month, but how long is that going to last? Do we really know? And how's that going to look on TV? Is it really going to work? We don't know. You know, uh, so I don't know. You know, maybe kind of like the NWO, um, Hulk Hogan, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, you know, promos that all of a sudden came from out of nowhere because they were born out of necessity. And, and to kind of change the way we did things, maybe something else will happen in wrestling. We'll have to become a seasonal product because of what we're experiencing. I hope not, but maybe, I, I don't know. But my gut tells me, I, I think by having seasons and having downtime, you are disengaging from your audience in a way that makes it hard to get them to come back. You know, one of the terms that people talk about often behind, you know, behind the scenes, you know, in boardrooms in the wrestling business is, you know, the lapsed fan phenomenon. And you know what I'm talking about. And yeah. some of that just happens because of life. You know, you start wrestling when you know, watching wrestling when you're a little kid, cause your dad watches it or your big brother watches it, or you have friends that watch it and it becomes kind of a big part of your life. And as you get into your teens, other things become more important and partying and you get your driver's license, you go off to college and there's all kinds of other life influences that kind of take you out of what was your viewing pattern. And you maybe get away from it. You're now a lapsed fan until you get into your 20, you know, mid twenties, late 30s and all of a sudden yeah something comes up and all of a sudden you start watching wrestling again and that there's a life cycle that that is pretty consistent you know with with people but i think having seasons would probably exacerbate the lapsed fan challenge uh more than it would help in the long run all right boys and girls it's time for us to talk about something eric and i really really love our pets uh, I'm a big dog guy. I've got two dogs here, Ginger and Baby. No, I didn't. Uh, these aren't my animals. I inherited them from my wife, but I love them just the same. And man, your dog, Nikki, is like a superstar. You posted a picture the other day of your dog checking the freaking mail, and I showed Megan the picture. She said, that's not a real picture. I said, no, that's where Eric lives. And she's like, when can we go to Eric's house? Uh, <laughs> the dog makes the photo, and the backs get the, the landscape. I mean, this is such a big part of your life, Nikki, and your relationship. Fair to say? It is. And, and you're right. By the way, Mrs. B took that picture while I was out of town uh, earlier this week. So I can't even take credit for taking that picture. Um, but, yeah, you know, my dog, Nikki, she's a, she's a star. Um, probably more people follow me on social media because of my dog than because of me, which is cool. But, yeah, she's a big – kidding aside, she's a really big part. My dog is with me 24-7 if, you know, when I'm home. Um, she, she just won't leave my side. She'd follow me in the shower if I would let her. And the relationship I have with this dog, and I've had some great dogs in my life. Don't get me wrong. Some really great dogs, but for whatever reason, the relationship I have with this dog is like, it's different and at a much higher level than any relationship I've ever had with a dog. She is so much like a person and a member of this family. It's, 
I can't say it enough. But and and you know, Conrad, you've been around Mrs. B and I long enough now. You know her pretty well. We're we're into nutrition. We're into and again, I'm 65 years old. I want to be around. I want to be not just be around. I don't want to just be around. I want to be active. I mean, I'd like to be riding horses 20 years from now, and it's possible if you do the right things and you take care of yourself. And the, you know, the older you get the more you have to pay attention to those things because you can get away with things when you're in your 20s, your teens, certainly in your 20s and even your 30s. Your body will kind of forgive a lot of stupid shit. But as you get older, the cumulative effect of some of that stupid shit starts to manifest and starts showing up in ways that you didn't anticipate when you were in your teens and your 20s and your 30s. But the same thing is true with dogs. Only dogs is a dog's lifespan is accelerated by a multiple of seven years. You know, it's dog years, as they say. So if you've got a dog, you know, my dog, Nikki, you know, her, she's an Australian cattle dog is, is her breed. Typically, they have a lifespan of eh, 14 to 16 years. Maybe a little older sometimes, maybe a little less, unfortunately, sometimes. So if that's their lifespan, it's important to me, knowing what I know now, um, to do the things, including feeding my dog properly at her, you know, she's three now, and I've been feeding her very carefully, and I've been very selective about what I feed my dog, because dog food, pet food, but dog food in particular in this conversation, much like human food, man, if you're not careful what you eat, you don't know what you're putting in your mouth. You don't know how how non-nutritious 80% of the food that we eat as humans is for you. And yeah, you get a lot of calories and it makes you feel good. And it may even taste good, but nutritionally for, especially now, you know, COVID, you know, immune systems, everybody's talking about underlying conditions. What are some of those underlying conditions in humans? Diabetes, self-inflicted, overweight, self-inflicted, heart issues, mostly self-inflicted. Um, so many, you know, COPD. Man, self-inflicted, emphysema, self-inflicted. So many of the diseases and the conditions we have today were number one, self-inflicted, but number two, exacerbated by the fact that we don't take care of ourselves because we don't we don't allow ourselves to 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 take advantage of the nutrients available to us because we eat garbage food. Well, if you think it's bad for humans, you have no idea how bad it is for pets because there's very little control over what goes into pet food. You don't know. And we become victims of marketing and advertising and it looks good. Gosh, it looks just like hamburger. It must be good for you. It's not necessarily. So I spent a lot of time doing the research, looking into the products and solid gold is a great great product i feed it to my dog my dog loves it but i've spent a lot of time looking at the ingredients and doing the research of solid gold food the probiotics all of the things that it has in it that allows a dog's digestive system to not only function properly but get the maximum amount of nutrients out of the food that they do eat so I, I can't recommend it strongly enough. If you love your pet like I do and like Conrad does, if you care about nutrition for your pet, if you want your pet to not only live a long life, but a long active life, then please, please, I beg of you, take the time to do the research, read about solid gold and all the things it has to offer. And I think you'll probably feel as strongly about it as I do. And did you know that up to 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut? or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies. 
Solid Gold is passionate about gut health because a healthy digestive system positively impacts that immune system and overall wellness of our pets. Solid Gold is the world's first holistic pet food company in America. Started back in 1974 by Sissy McGill, she really was a trailblazer and a pioneer who disrupted this male-dominated industry. But she created a natural pet food here before it was cool, and she was inspired by the fact that European pet food and the fact that European Great Danes lived longer than their American counterparts. And her first recipe has helped provide quality nutrition and digestive health for more than 20 generations of dogs. So we're talking about for more than 45 years, they really have revolutionized this holistic pet food category. And now they've got a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including whole grain and grain free, wet food, supplements like sea meal, and 100% human grade bone broth for dogs. This is all from solid gold, by the way. And these solid gold foods are different because they cleanse your digestive system with the whole superfoods, balance with living probiotics, and fuel with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids, all supporting gut health and nourishing your pet both inside and out. But right now, because you listen to this show, you can go see the Solid Gold Deal of the Week at solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. Seriously, if you love your dog, go check out solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks to see the deal of the week. Remember, that's solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. Let's talk about, uh, this is not a question that we got, but I do want to bring it up because Eric Young is somebody you worked with in TNA uh, for a good, a good amount of time. And, and you're familiar with his work and him as a person. And he was recently released from WWE and he showed up, I don't know, about a week ago or so on the uh, TNA pay-per-view. And then he made an appearance on busted open radio uh, with our pal, Dave LaGreca. And he says, we don't need to go on and on about it, but the system is broken. It's hard to get a word in. There's no creativity. They want everyone to do the the same, uh, to do things the same and be the same and bump the same and sell the same. There's millions of rules, which I'm sure you guys have all heard about and talked about on the show at length. And people talk about on the internet, the secret rules. Well, those change daily. And it's just really hard to understand what's going on and why it's going on. The system is flawed. And I would say this, I would say that to anyone there, and I would say it to Vince McMahon. I don't think it's anything personal. Anytime me and him were in a room together or we spoke, he was always respectful. We had two pretty decently long conversations, and I thought they went well, and he understood where I was coming from. But I'm a 40-year-old man. I'm not going to wait in the hallway like a child and maybe get five minutes to talk to him. I said my piece to him. He seemed to be responsive to it, and nothing ever came from it. I don't take it personally. He made a mistake. And as a leader of the company and that person decides everything, it's a massive mistake to pass on somebody with me. Uh, I think he means like me. You have a three hour television show and you can't find five minutes for Eric young. Your show is broken. It's as simple as that. I've proven that I can do whatever, any role. I'm not saying I can do it. I've already done it and I've proven I can do it and I do it very well. So. There's a lot to unpack here, but he's talking about his most recent run and just sums it up. Their system is broken. You that you were there, you saw how the, the sausage was made last year. What do you think? Do you think the system is broken? I think the system is challenged for sure. I don't, I wouldn't say it's broken. 
but I definitely think there's a challenge here. And I've said, I, I, look, I'm, I've, I've taken this position before I ever got hired with WWE. I was very public about it. Um, so much so that, you know, I, I guess maybe Vince had ever heard some of the comments that I made prior to him hiring me back last summer. He might not have done so because I've been pretty honest about this. And again, I'm going to try to keep this as concise as possible, but in, in, a, in a way, I think WWE has become a victim of their own success. I, I, I firmly believe that. They're producing so much wrestling. Just the sheer volume of it and the work that goes into it doesn't provide for a lot of opportunity to engage in creative conversations with talent. I've been there. I've I was there last summer. I saw it. You know, we talked jokingly about drinking fire from a fire hose. That's what producing television in WWE is because there's so much of it. It's not a knock on anybody. I'm fucking amazed that they're able to crank out the kind of content that they're able to crank out, the sheer volume of it and the quality of it, given the, the quantity of it. Um, but it doesn't leave a lot of opportunity for thought and creative, creative thought. And that's, I think what Eric is, is referring to here, uh, in, in some of those comments. And I read them my, my, myself the other day, I didn't hear the, the actual radio show, but I did read the transcript. Um, I, I can identify with what Eric is saying, especially from a talent's perspective, the, the challenge that WWE has is they have a filter. And it's been a very successful filter, as I've said many times. But there comes a time when you have to change the creative approach. You have to adapt. You, you have to adapt. In any business, the business changes, the market changes, the appetite changes, the conditions change. Everything changes. Nothing ever stays the same. And if you can't, A, recognize it, and B, be willing to adapt to it, you're, you're heading in the wrong direction. And I, I think because the formula has been so successful for so long in WWE, there is a hesitancy to change the formula or to change the filter. And sometimes it's just necessary. And I think in WWE, you know, they've done so many things right. You know, the performance center, not an ideal solution, by the way, because the talent that's working in that performance center are not really consistently going out and performing in front of a live crowd. They're not having the, the, the talent in the performance center don't necessarily get a chance to work with more seasoned talent. You know, you don't see a guy like Randy Orton coming in and shooting an angle over at NXT to help elevate some of that talent and get them experience and actually be in the ring working with somebody that's got the kind of pedigree that Randy Orton has. That, that opportunity doesn't exist. The opportunity doesn't exist for some of that developing talent to go out and work in a house show where there is no camera, but you have to really, really get the crowd on your side and you have to learn psychology. You have to learn your timing. You have to learn when to do something and when not to do something. Those opportunities do not exist within the four walls of a performance center for 
the most part, not the way that they used to. And because they don't exist, the talent doesn't get a chance to develop the way they used to. What you have now is, and again, this is not a knock, so please don't anybody take it that way, but you have a cookie cutter kind of factory formula process. You know, the WWE is now the, you know, the Ford Motor Company of professional wrestling. It's an assembly line and all the parts are interchangeable. And sometimes the product is indistinguishable because everything is so interchangeable because of that one filter at the end of the process that determines what goes on television and what doesn't go on television. Well, when you've got the same people who are training, teaching, um, coaching, directing, producing, and approving the entire process from beginning to middle and end, and that one person, that one filter – uh, that determines what we see and we don't see hasn't changed. Guess what? Neither does the product. And there's such a sameness. You've heard me say this for the last two years. There is a sameness to the WWE product that is a result of the entire process from beginning to the end. And that sameness is what's hurting the product. And that's probably what Eric is refer Eric Young is referring to here because you don't have the ability to say, "Hey, what if we do this instead?" Or, "Hey, I was driving, you know, to the building and I had this idea to improve something because everything is moving so fast. You're moving at a you're moving at the speed of sound when you show up at that arena just to get everything done. When they're changing shows and changing promos and changing everything five minutes before showtime. I was there, folks. I saw it. And I know what one of the, the biggest knocks on me from, from, from writers, you know, back when I was doing is, oh, man, they're changing the shows right up until the last minute. Well, guess what? <laughs> That's nothing new with live television. But in, in WWE, because of the sheer volume of it, the, the opportunity for, for somebody to kind of raise their hand, stop the train, and say, wait a minute. What if we try this instead and really get into that conversation? Not a, not a conversation to say you've had one, not a polite conversation to, to do what you think is right as an executive, not, not a perfunctory kind of conversation, but a real conversation where you can really break an idea down. That, those windows of opportunities are almost non-existent because of the sheer volume of the content that's being produced. And I think that's what, that's what I mean by becoming a victim of your own success. Here's the good news. The good news is, you know, WWE is producing seven hours of primetime programming, 350, 365 days or 52 weeks a year. And they're, and that's in it. They're generating a half a billion dollars or more in license fees or whatever the number is every year doing it. Yay for them. But the cost to the product is the lack of creativity and flexibility that goes into it. And I think that's what's hurting the product. That's probably what, what Eric Young is referring to and led to a lot of his frustration. And I, and I, I get it, you know, it, I get it. Kurt you remember Rex. the other, you remember the other day when we were talking to Tony Khan and we, I, I don't know how we got on the subject, but it was the, you know, adding another show kind of conversation that we had. And, and I, you know, I guess you you must have asked me if I had any advice, and I was reluctant at this point in my life to give anybody any advice about anything. But the one thing I, I did say in response to your question was, go slow. 
you know, make sure you have the infrastructure behind you. It's sure it's possible to shoot a show. There's no problem shooting a show. Adding another show is the easy part, but maintaining your ability to be adaptable and more importantly, have the time within your day or your week or your month to be able to consistently have those high quality creative conversations where really the magic happens. The magic happens in a collaboration and collaborations happen in a, in a healthy, you know, less stressful environment, the better kind of situation. And when you get to the point where all of a sudden now you're running and you're gunning and you've got, you know, your deadlines are the most important thing to you. What suffers is the creative process. And that's kind of what I meant. You know, adding another show is easy in many respects, but be aware of, you know, the effect that it has on your creative process. And I think that's what Eric Young is referring to here. There's just no time. There's no time. And sometimes you want to make changes. You know, you hear a good idea, but there's so many other things going on. And 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 maybe Eric Bischoff comes in and says, hey, Vince, what, what if we did this instead? Or I go to Bruce and say, hey, Bruce, I got a better idea. What if we do this instead? And Bruce would maybe go, you know, hypothetically, of course, oh, that's a great idea. But we can't do that because of this. There's a whole lot of those conversations that take place when you're on that fast-paced bullet train and you're producing that much content every week. Well, the other thing we talked about with Tony is, you know, it all came up about the whole Thunder thing uh, because there had been rumors of a second show. And I think one of the common thoughts is, hey, if if you go back in time and you say, when did you know, oh, man, this is uh, this is less than ideal, you went kicking and screaming into the Thunder thinking that, that this is going to be bad for the company. And it proved to be right. It watered it down and et cetera, et cetera. But we sort of expanded on all that with Tony, but I think your point was we had two shows and one just felt better than, and one felt, one felt less than neither felt different than, and that's the same analogy you drew between raw and SmackDown with the idea of being, okay, one's red and one's blue, but what the fuck else is different? It looks and feels the same. And I think you think if there is a second wrestling show, and I think this is wise, it should be a different look and feel. It shouldn't feel like, oh, this is a continuation of the other show. It needs to feel different in presentation. Absolutely. And, and, and that's, you know, the, the comment I left you with, and, and, and I guess Tony was format, you know, think in terms of format, what can you do differently that you can rinse and repeat, meaning do it week in and week out, that it's not overwhelming, but feels unique. Then you're not deluding yourself. But if all you're doing is putting on another wrestling show, and I don't care if it's on another platform or whatever, but if it's just another wrestling show, and I'm not suggesting that's what anybody's doing, but if that's your approach, if, you're, if your goal is, oh, we need to add another show, and you, you number one, don't anticipate how that's going to affect you logistically in the long term, meaning, you know, are you going to have time to have fun creating new stuff or are you going to be so busy cranking out stuff that the fun part of creating the, and the most important part, which is creating suffers because of the process and the pressure of the process. That's the point I was trying to make. And I think the best solution for that is come up with a format that doesn't, that mitigates or, or minimizes the uh, uh, impact it's going to have on on one creatively. Uh, let's talk about uh, arena costs. This is from Kurt. He says, we've heard you talk about the cost of renting a venue for a show. 
How much do you think it would cost to rent a typical arena in a major market like Chicago, LA, or Dallas? And how much more would MSG be since we've heard that that is now one of the most expensive arenas in the world to rent? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I got out of booking arenas 20 years ago or 25 years ago, so I have no idea what the, what, what the going market rate is for a, a major market arena in today's environment. Here's what I do know about Madison Square Garden. Right off the bat, you know, you're you're paying for that brand because anything coming from Madison Square Garden has a patina to it. It feels more important because of Madison Square Garden and because of what they've done over the decades or however long it's been, 100 years, I don't know what the history of Madison Square Garden is, but it is the mecca of American entertainment. Anything coming from Madison Square Garden is more significant than that same thing coming from any other venue in the United States, if not any other venue in the world uh, of that nature. So number one, you're paying for the prestige. You're also paying for the real estate. It's a little expensive in New York. Everything's expensive in New York. A fucking bureau costs you 12 bucks in New York, right? So you're just paying for the location as well as the prestige of, of the brand Madison Square Garden. But it's the union costs that are the real ass kicker because, well, because it's a very powerful union and they're a very strict union and there's no getting around that union. And producing a show in Madison Square Garden, in addition to the brand privilege, in addition to the high price of real estate, now you've got an extremely high added cost and expense because of having to work with the local union. Whereas in other venues, you're, you're going to, a lot of venues have unions, but none of which are as expensive as probably producing television in New York City. Yeah, I mean, it'd be north of half a million dollars. Easily. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. 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 Or, or more. And, and then there's probably a share of revenue that goes along with it. And there's probably all other, all, or, or all other forms and manners in which, you know, Madison square garden is participating in your revenue as a result. So it's just, it, it's so it's more, look, if you're going to produce something in Madison square garden, you're not doing it to make money. You're doing it to brand. You're, you're taking advantage of that branding opportunity that coming to you live from Madison Square Garden offers you. You're not doing it because it's a good financial situation in the short term. Hey, man, want to make this the best summer ever? What if you could get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments by five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month? But what if the little cherry on top was no house payments for two months? That's right. No payments in August or September. You're done until October and come October, you're going to have a better mortgage, but don't take my word for it. Ask Kenneth in Hazel green, Kentucky. He says, all I was trying to do was refinance down to 10 years in order to set me up for retirement without a mortgage payment. After telling first family what I wanted, not only did they get me a shorter term, but they were able to reduce my payment and cut my interest rate in half. I could not be more satisfied with the process and the outcome. If you're looking to get out of debt faster and with cheaper monthly payments, and maybe even get rid of all your credit card debt, man, you've got to go to savewithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can qualify. And because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. 
That's SaveWithConrad.com. Mike wants to know, I'm sorry, Mick wants to know, would Eric ever consider writing a fresh autobiography without the WWE name to it? Maybe a follow-up from Controversy Creates Cash? I don't think I have anything to say. I mean, somebody asked me that question on social media a while back, and my answer was, look, I I come up with a new audio book with Conrad Thompson every Monday morning at 6 a.m. What do I have? What do I could I possibly write about in a book that we haven't discussed or will discuss on this show? Um, so no, I don't think I have a book in me. I really don't. But you know, who knows? Some, maybe that'll change someday. But right now, if I had to sit down and write a book, what what could I possibly write about that I haven't already written about or discuss on this show every week? I don't know. Barat writes, having seen so many second generation wrestling personalities struggle to break free of their paternal shadows, Greg Gagne and Mike Graham, to name a couple, how difficult was it for Eric to be okay with his son, Garrett entering the industry? And did Eric have to help convince Mrs. B of this plan? You know, I, that's a great question and I appreciate it. Um, I tried to talk Garrett, you know, out of wanting to be in the business to a degree. I mean, look, by the time Garrett was old enough to make his own choices and decisions, I recognized that he was a very independent young man, a very smart young man, and a a very determined young man. And my role as a father was to be honest with him and, and tell him all the reasons why I thought him wanting to get into the wrestling business was a bad idea or maybe not necessarily a bad idea, but not the best choice that he could make. Um, because at the, at the time there was really only one place to work and that was WWE. And, and, and although TNA provided an opportunity for Garrett, it wasn't a long-term opportunity. It wasn't oppor- it wasn't an opportunity to make a significant amount of money in, in you know, in three, four or five years, it was a good gig and it was a good place to learn things. And it was a good TNA I'm talking about was a good place to get exposure, but it was not necessarily a great career opportunity. And I explained to Garrett that, you know, he had two really, he had an, an extremely, you know, powerful advantage in me at the time because I was in TNA and I had influence and I could help create that opportunity but I was also his biggest challenge because his last name was Bischoff, which meant that, you know, going to WWE would have been a challenge for him because of that. Even if he would have been able to get into WWE, overcoming the stigma of being Eric Bischoff's son would have been a challenge as it was for Mike Graham and, and, and Greg Gagne and Eric Watts and, you know, to a degree, Randy Orton, Randy Orton overcame it, obviously. And, you know, I, I love Randy's dad, by the way, Bob Orton is so cool to hang out with. I love crossing paths with him. We have so much fun and all due respect to, to, to Bob Orton, you know, Randy's kind of Randy's in his own stratosphere now in, in terms of professional wrestling, but Randy's the rare exception. Usually it's, it doesn't work out so well. Um, even Dustin Rhodes in WCW. I mean, look how how great of a career Dustin Rhodes had. But early on, he was Dusty's son. And he had to overcome that. He had to overcome that in the locker room when, you know, he was the son of the booker. 
for a long time in WCW. That's a challenge. And it takes a unique person to recognize and overcome that challenge. And Dustin did to, to his credit, but more often than not, that's a, that's a hardship. And I did try to talk Garrett out of it, but once I realized that he was determined, um, then my role as a father was to be as supportive as I could and help him in any way that I could. And I did as far as, you know, Mrs. B concerned, you know, she's, I've said this before. She's, she's the ultimate supporter, you know, and she, she, she had no issue with it. She was a little concerned about injuries and things like that. Um, but for the most part, she was very, very supportive. I, I, on the other hand, was a little bit of a harder hurdle for Garrett to get over. And I, I threw as many roadblocks in front of it as I could until I realized it won't matter. And then I had to shift gears and just be supportive. Well, it is a fun and interesting question because it feels like we hear that from guys in the business so often when they try to talk their kids out of it. Uh, but, I mean, I guess you should you know, briefly update. Cause we do get a lot of questions. Although Garrett's not in the business, Garrett's doing real well for himself these days. Yeah. Garrett's, uh, he, he's living down in Clearwater, Florida, uh, with his wife. They've been married for seven or eight years now, whatever it's been. And Garrett is a, a supervisor for a commercial construction company. So he runs some construction crews around the Florida area that build primarily apartment buildings and office complexes and things like that all over the Southeast. But Garrett's territory is more or less Florida. So, you know, he's, he's doing very, very well and he's very happy and they have a nice home and are considering starting a family and they're, they're doing extremely well, but, uh, and I'm glad to see that, you know, the, you know, it's kind of like, I get it. You know, it's like, you know, kid comes home and says, mom, dad, I want to be an actor, an actress, right? I want to be a musician. You know, th- those are career choices where you have maybe a like those are industries where 5% of the the people in it make 95% of the money and everybody else is just there struggling and trying to break through to be one of those 5%, right? And wrestling is not a lot different, you know, to be able to get to the level where you're making a good living. You don't have to become a Randy Orton or a John Cena or, or Roman Reigns necessarily, uh, or Chris Jericho. Those are, those are the 1% of the 5%, right? To even get into the top 25%, you know, the odds of that happening are so slim and you've spent five or seven years of your adult life committed to that process. Well, those are five or seven years of your adult life that you're not committing to other ways of making a living that you can sustain for the next 25 or 30 years. Because if you've spent five or seven years trying to get into that top 25% in sports entertainment, where you can actually make a good living to set you set yourself up for the rest of your life. And if you don't make it, you're starting over again. You've just gone from being 33 years old and 35 years old and having a shot at making a great deal of money in the future and something were to happen, whether it be an injury or just the realization that it's not going to happen for you. And all of a sudden now you're in your early thirties or mid thirties going, okay, now what am I going to do for the rest of my life? That's a very daunting kind of reality to face. And that's kind of what I tried to explain to Garrett is the nature of the industry. It wasn't the same when there was a WWE and a, and a WCW and, you know, other regional territories we could actually make a consistently good living. It was WWE and the independent scene back then, you know, back when Garrett was wanting to get involved. And it's like, okay, great. If you make it to WWE, you've got a per, you know, small percentage of a chance that you're actually going to make great money. 
But what are you going to do if that doesn't happen? How are you going to get that time back that you've spent putting into it? And that's the decision that people, whether you get into music or you actor or an actress or any other form of entertainment, you know, you, you have to face that because the skill sets that you develop as a performer in wrestling don't necessarily translate well to the open job market. <laughs> you know, when you apply for a job as a computer programmer, for example, and they go look at your resume and they say, well, what have you been doing for the last five years? Well, I throw a mean dropkick. <laughs> I could, I could cut a hell of a promo, you know, I'm fucking a wizard at lunch man. you should watch me go. Give me a mic. Watch me go. Those skill sets don't necessarily apply to, you know, most job, job opportunities out there. So that that's, you know, what people have to weigh. And it's one of the reasons why, by the way, when people talk about WWE hall of fame, for example, you know, that's why the WWE Hall of Fame is my favorite part of WrestleMania, because you're looking at people who have taken that risk, who've made that decision, whether it was a good one or a bad one, uh, or early in their lives, they've made that decision and commitment to chase that dream. Just like somebody chasing the dream to be a rock star or, or, or an actor or an actress. And to be able to, you know, be successful. And to have gone through that process and paid the dues that you had to pay and take the risk that you had to take, whether you knew you were taking that risk or not, in many cases, I think not, but nonetheless, you took that risk and you made it to that pinnacle of success where you actually made a living in, in, in the entertainment industry. I think those people deserve all the credit in the world as talent because of the risk they've had to take. Yeah, they make a lot of money and they're famous and they get to go to autograph signings and people know their name and all the other things that everybody thinks is so great. And it is, don't get me wrong. But man, the price you pay and the risk you take to achieve it is pretty phenomenal. And that's one of the reasons why I love, you know, watching the Hall of Fame because those are real emotions. You know, those those people really made it through and and they took a shot and they made it. You know, look at the odds. It's like if your kid came to you and said, yeah, yeah, I want to I play in the NFL. Well, that's a great goal. But a good friend of mine who won a Super Bowl ring, you know, in, 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 for the San Francisco 49ers and played for the New England Patriots told me once that, you know, maybe 1% of some of the top collegiate players actually make a living in the NFL or whatever the percentage is. It's very small. It might have been 3% or 5%. The odd, If you're a high-level collegiate player, the odds of you making a living beyond maybe making the team or getting drafted, but to be in the NFL and play for five to seven years where you've actually made enough money and you've got enough pension and, and, and benefits to kind of sustain yourself through what's left of your life, the odds of making that are like 1% or 3% if you're a top level world-class athlete it's kind of the same thing you know wrestling is not a lot different than that kc has an interesting question do you think the montreal screw job would have happened if medusa hadn't dropped the wwf women's title in the trash mcfoley has often said that vince was worried brett would do the same if he was allowed to win at survivor series and give up the belt on raw the next day um, obviously you've told the story that you didn't care whether or not Brett had the, the belt, but still a precedent was set when someone's contract was up or they were released or whatever. If they still had a title, the only other time that happened, they showed up on nitro and threw it in the trash. So I guess in a roundabout way, Eric, we have finally decided officially today, uh, Eric screwed Brett. You're the reason the Montreal screw job happened. 
<laughs> That's funny. Um, I, 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 look, I, if I use my imagination and my put myself in Vince McMahon's shoes, I can understand why he may have had that thought, but somebody, anybody, especially a Jerry McDivitt or somebody close to Vince that, that really kind of had a broader view of what was really going on. We were so deep into that federal trademark lawsuit by that point that any breath, any implication in any inference of a WWE uh, of WWE intellectual property would have added to an already huge problem for Turner Broadcasting. And Vince knew that, you know, we had to adjust some of the things that we said on TV to kind of work around the shitstorm that we had, cre- I had created by, you know, giving WWE an opportunity to claim trademark infringement, regardless of whether I think that that had a basis or not. Some of it, some, some of it we did, but or some of it did, but a lot of it didn't. But it, in either case, we were so deep into that and we were on our heels so badly and WWE knew it at that time that they had to know that we wouldn't have gone there. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't have gone there. If Brett would have said, hey, I'm going to work everybody and I'm going to bring the title. Do you want to kind of throw it in the trash the way you did Medusa's? Big part of me would have said, fuck yeah, bring that bitch. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, that's going to drive everybody crazy. Oh, people are going to go nuts. Oh, Vince McMahon's going to jump off a building. The big part of me would have loved that. And then there would have been a conversation with a guy by the name of Nick Lambros or Diana Myers which would have been the very first of a series of conversations that I would have had that would have led me to the North tower on the 15th floor with another attorney that would have said, are you nuts? Are you suicidal? No, you don't get to do that, Eric. And Vince had to know that. So I get it. I understand it in one respect, but from a practical point of view, there's no way it could have happened. And there's no way that WWE could not have known it was not going to happen. I think there was something more to it than that. I don't know what it was. Don't care. Never had the conversation with anybody about it. But I think there was something more to, yeah, but if Brett shows up with the title, Bischoff's going to throw it in the trash or disparage it in some way. I don't think that was it because that would have been impossible. And Vince or WWE would have had to have known that. Uh, Let's do another question here from a hypothetical standpoint. Michael Eldridge wants to know, if the rumored Chris Hemsworth Hogan movie were to happen someday, do you think Eric would have a role in the movie or who would play Eric? That's sort of fun to think about a fan. There is a rumored Chris Hemsworth Hogan movie being discussed. Uh, I don't, I know you don't have any particulars on that, but hypothetically, who would you want to play you in the movie? If, if Hogan is going to be played by Chris Hemsworth, if there is an Eric Bischoff character in the story, who do you think should play Eric Bischoff? Oh, that's a tough one. I, I, you know, I, I would, I would have to go with Tom Cruise. You want Tom Cruise to play you? Yeah. I mean, he's a little long in the tooth now. I mean, uh, obviously if, if the movie, when I'm, I'm going to be positive and say when the movie comes out, um, you know, it's, likely going to be about an era, um, of Hulk's life 
that would have been probably from the 80s or 90s. And while Tom Cruise is not 39 or 40 anymore, which Eric Bischoff was at the time, he still looks like you could see, you know, a little bit of makeup, a little bit of CGI, a little bit of help from, you know, all the movie magic that's possible. I think Tom Cruise could still pull it off. You know, he's, he's cocky enough looking and, you know, arrogant enough. And he could, I, I think, I think Tom could probably pull off a good Eric Bischoff. That's pretty. That's nice of you, man, to to give a shot to one of the biggest actors in the history of film. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I look. I, I'd give him a look. You know, no promises, Tom. If you're listening to this, I know you're probably a wrestling fan. No promises. You know, I don't have a tremendous amount of influence in the way things go down with this potential project. But if I did, Tom, I'd throw your name in a hat and, and at least give you a shot. Instagram, a wrestling historian, wants to know why was there no climax to the NWO storyline. How would you have liked to have ended it in a more proper manner? Did you have an ending in mind that just for whatever reason never happened? No. I mean, the, the, the means that would have led us to a potential end. Look, the NWO was supposed to take over Nitro. WCW was going to have thunder. I've said that a million times. So I, that was the strategy. The strategy wasn't how to put an end to the NWO. The strategy was how do I create NWO to be its own unique, distinct brand in its own show? So there was never a, a, a desire to put an end to it. There was never a reason to want to put an end to it. There was a desire and a reason to try to build it as its own brand so that it could sustain that kind of brand position within a WWO pro WW, excuse me, a WCW program. So, I mean, the, when I say I've said it a thousand times, um, you know, the question comes up often and I appreciate the question. Wrestling historian is one of our, you know, my favorite followers on Twitter and I know he's a big fan of the show and I think he follows us on Patreon. So I don't mean this to be critical, but the, just keep in mind the idea, uh, not initially, but when thunder happened, um, we're talking about early 98 now or sometime in mid 98 or whenever it was 97. I can't remember the dates, Thunder but whenever it, 98. okay. When, when that discussion started happening, any thought about, okay, how do we end this storyline went out the window and it became, okay, now we've got this powerful thing. We got the juggernaut called the NWO. How do we take advantage of it? How do we best utilize it? And the decision was made. Nitro gets NW, excuse me, NWO gets nitro WCW gets thunder. That was the goal, not how do we put an end to it and what could we do to make it really, you know, interesting when it comes to an end. Interesting question about real life here from Michael Eldridge. He says, Eric often talks about on the show, how he loves grilling. If he could only grill one meat for the rest of his life, what would he pick and why? Slow smoked brisket. Some of the best things in life are just so simple. I, I, I really well smoked brisket. And when I say well smoked, I mean at 220 degrees, 225 degrees for six or eight hours, uh, maybe even overnight to me, damn, there are better cuts of meat out there, but I don't think done well, much can beat a really good brisket. It's a good answer. I don't know that I would have picked that. I mean, I don't know that I would have guessed you were going to say that I would have imagined you would have said some sort of wild bullshit you caught or shot with a bow and arrow or something. <laughs> Killed with my bare hands, jumped out of a tree, jumped on it like a horse, wrestled it to the ground. 
well, took its life with my bare hands and it took a bite of its heart. I'm not that guy. I'm just <laughs> saying though, this is the same guy who last week on the show said, oh yeah. So I drove 16 hours round trip to get wild caught salmon. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on up there? And you know, I know that you would do occasionally, uh, go, um, well, take care of business the old fashioned way and go hunting. And then you load up the freezer. So in my head, you're like, I like free range bison that I shot with a bow and arrow. And I no, I, and I understand why you would say that. And look, I do love elk. You know, I'm, in fact, I've got an elk hunt planned, uh, in September, uh, in the Bighorn mountains. I'm going archery hunting for elk as a matter of fact, in the Bighorn mountains. So, and I'm very much looking forward to it because I like the process. I love the process of hunting and the planning and this preparation. I mean, we're already scouting areas and doing research. And I mean, it's, it, the process is fun and just being up there and, and engaging with nature on that level to me is, that's a real high. That's, that's my cocaine. You know, that's my meth. I get up there and it's just, I, I feel completely differently and harvesting an animal it not even the goal. It's a benefit of it, but it's not the goal. Um, but I love elk. I really do. But when it comes down to the best cut of meat in terms of flavor, you know, and I, you know, grass fed beef, I, I don't like corn, you know, corn fed beef is something, okay, we're going to go off track for here for a second. I'll keep it quick. But you know, we've been conditioned to think corn fed beef is the best corn fed beef. Isn't the best grass to me, grass and cows don't eat corn. Corn was introduced to feed cattle to fatten them up as quickly as you can over the shortest period of time possible so you can get a return on your investment in a matter of weeks instead of months or maybe a year. But it's not something that, a, you know, livestock would normally eat, but it's it's sugar. It's like fattening your cattle up on Milky Way bars. Great. They get fat really fast and you can get them to market quicker, but it's not something that they would normally eat. And it affects the taste and the texture of the meat. So I look for beef that's, you know, and I'm going to get some this weekend for when we get back from Jackson Hole. I'm going to, I'm going to grill something on Sunday that I'm actually going to post probably on, uh, on Patreon. Um, but I'm going to look for the best grass fed beef I can buy that's been properly aged, not just slaughtered, processed, and shipped out to Walmart two days later, but something that's been aged for 36, 38, 43 days at about 36 degrees, 37 degrees with the right humidity because that changes the texture completely and the flavor of the meat as well as it does wild game. So um, I love wild game. Don't get me wrong. But in terms of if it was going to be my last cut of meat, I'd, I'd go for a good brisket. Eric, I just sent you a text message and there's a photo attached and uh, I just want you to take a look at that photo when you get a chance. And I'll ask the next question about that photo. But first Sam writes, could you shed some light on Anoki's appearance at clash of the champions 28? It just seems weird. Is this something on his bucket list during his retirement tour? Or did he really want to wrestle Lord Steven Regal? Any Anoki stories would be much appreciated. <laughs> Look, Inoki was and is um, a very savvy businessman. Inoki was Inoki was very um, cognizant of his political influence and knew how to use media and television to help sustain it or or even grow it. 
So I think, you know, for the most part, it wasn't about whether Anoki wanted to wrestle Steven Regal or not, but I think Anoki having an opportunity to have a high kind of profile position in American, you know, wrestling, one of the, you know, as, as powerful as wrestling has been in Japan over the years, they still look at, you know, American wrestling or did back then. I won't speak for what, how, how Japanese view American wrestling today, but you know, if you, if you made it in the United States, you really made it in Japan. It was one of the reasons why new Japan was so interested in maintaining kind of a long-term and consistent relationship with WCW because it helped get a lot of their talent over by coming over to you. Know, when Muda came over, Liger came over, Ricky Choshu came over, anybody came over, um, their stock went up in value by the time they went back to Japan because making it big in America made them even bigger in Japan. And Anoki was well aware of that. So I think his participation in WCW in terms of on camera was more about, you know, keeping his own equity as high as possible, more so than who he got to work with. Uh, to Scott, to try tweets, Please tell me who this guy was behind Roddy Piper at Halloween Havoc 1996. And he posts a couple of screen grabs and I admit, I have no idea what's going on here. I've, I've loved this show. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. You and I covered it. I don't know that I remember seeing this fellow come through the curtain. It looks like he's got some sort of a ray on some skinny jeans, a, a medium t-shirt and some, uh, suspenders. Do you know who that person is? Yeah, man, I wish I could remember his name. I I don't. And he was for a while he was Roddy's Jimmy Hart. Gotcha. You know, he helped Roddy get through the airport. He he was always he was wherever Roddy was. And I think Roddy was interested in God, I think his first name was Craig. I'm not sure. I'm 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 gonna have to go back and revisit that. Maybe give Hulk a call because I think Hulk will remember him. Um I still remember his name, but it, it, Quick answer, he was being positioned and groomed to be Roddy's version of of, of uh, Jimmy Hart. Craig Payette, does that sound right? Could be. Nice, nice, nice enough guy. He was like a bodybuilder, kind of Roddy fan, Mark, whatever you want to call it. Um, didn't really have a lot of talent or purpose, but didn't really do much harm. Didn't really take away from Roddy, so kind of let it go on but uh, i think he he was only around for a short period of time it's just weird though that i never noticed that he came through the curtain behind roddy i mean not at the same time but a few steps behind but i don't know yeah yeah he was kind of positioned as roddy's bodyguard you know always had roddy's back but yeah whatever all right here's a question that we got over and over um emmy name is jono i don't know how you say your handle here buddy but he says, what'd you think of the WWE eye for an eye match on pay-per-view? So famously Seth Rollins removed the eyeball from Rey Mysterio's head. It was a part of the horror show. I guess that was the tagline for extreme rules. What'd you think? Uh, I was on a plane when that went down. So I was, uh, I was on my way to, uh, the East coast and my flight didn't land till 1130 that night, Sunday night. So I didn't see it and I haven't made any effort to see it, nor Good. will I, because yeah. just the idea to me is ridiculous. 
It made no sense. It took me out of the moment. The minute I heard that that's what they were going to do, I made up my mind I wasn't going to donate 30 seconds of what's left of my life to watch something that ridiculous. So I didn't, and I won't. I will say uh, a lot of people were pointing fingers at the end of that. You should have a conversation with Bruce about that one day because I got an earful. It was tremendous. Uh, Ray LaDuke wants to know, got any good Harley race stories? Not really. I mean, I didn't hang out with, you know, Harley. It's not like we drove together up and down the road or spent time, you know, partaking in any extracurricular activities outside of day-to-day work. So I, I don't really have any good Harley stories other than, you know, Harley was a guy that commanded so much respect. And I'm not talking about Harley's, although he was in, in, at the peak of Harley's career, he was, he was an intimidating son of a bitch and, and he, he'd fight anybody, anything for any reason, including just a good time. Um, and he had that reputation, but he also had a tremendous amount of respect for just who he was and the way he conducted himself, uh, generally speaking. So that was just always my impression of Harley is there was nobody that didn't show Harley respect the minute he walked into any room. I don't care if it was Ric Flair and, and somebody who arguably had probably achieved more than Harley in, in, in many respects, or if it was some kid fresh off the boat, his first day in a locker room, you know, there was a sense of awe in a way that was common across the boards, you know, and, and not a lot of people had that. Gary wants to know what will the wrestling business look like post Vince McMahon? I don't know, man. Um, I mean, ask me a week from now, the answer would probably be different than it is this week. You know, I, it's, it's going to change how it's going to change. I don't know. There are so many variables that can influence those changes. Um, I like to hope, let's talk about what I hope. I hope we go back to a more diverse, uh, when it comes to presentation, when it comes to characters, you know, wrestling was the professional wrestling has always been alternative television. It was alternative television before alternative alternative television was a phrase that was used in the in, in industry. You know, alternative television as a category, you know, people, different television networks had now heads of alternative television, right? And, and that was born really out of reality television or now they've evolved. They don't want to call it reality because that has a stigma. So they call it unscripted, which is broader. And can even include documentaries. So you have the you have these unscripted uh, divisions w- within companies, uh, television companies, um, and all of them are looking at the broader category called alternative. Alternative meaning it's not a sport, it's not a comedy, it's not a drama, it may or may not be a documentary. It's its own kind of 
little world, right? Well, that's the territory in the real estate that professional wrestling has occupied since the beginning of television time. And then with the proliferation and success of reality television, early reality television, going back to MTV in 97 or 98 or whenever it was, and and then, you know, boom, you've got the survivor, and then you've got all forms of other unscripted alternative television that that followed, you know, the success uh, of Survivor. Well, all of, you know, that audience used to be kind of sort of a wrestling audience because wrestling was that one alternative, is that one something different than everything else that was available. And it's kind of lost that. It's become so overproduced in the case of WWE, in my opinion, for whatever it's worth, which isn't really much anymore, but in my opinion, it's lost its sense of being an alternative because it's overproduced. And I would hope that at some point before or after Vince McMahon is no longer in, in the driver's seat, I would hope at some point that it goes, I hate to say this, goes back to the future a little bit and becomes the alternative to what is today our television fair or menu because it's lost that in, in the case of WWE, I think AEW is, is done a good job of maintaining that to a degree. I think the free form nature of their promos, you know, the, the more gritty kind of presentation and the treatment of the venue and the live television experience gives AEW, I think a, a pretty strong edge in that category, but I would hope that with respect to WWE and what's going to happen before or after Vince McMahon kind of, loosens up some control there. I would love to see WWE kind of go back to what got them to the dance. You can't go back to the attitude era. You can't go back to that because there's so many things that were done back then that you're just not going to be able to pull off in today's television environment and advertising environment. But there's a tonality and a presentation that feels a little looser, a little more spontaneous and a little grittier than what we see today. And I would like to see that kind of happen. Yeah, I think we all would. And um, we'll do a couple more here, and then we'll wrap things up. And, and there are some hypothetical questions that I'd like to dig into, but I feel like this one is maybe a little more sentimental. James wants to know, if Eric was given the opportunity to say goodbye to WCW at the Panama City Beach show March 26, 2001, would he have went to the show? Wow. Yeah, I would have. I would have. I would have just, yeah, because I, yes, I would have gone. I, I would have gone. It would have been hard. I would have, I would have really had to have some long, hard conversations with myself in order to get my head in the right place. But yeah, I would have gone. I just think, um, I don't know. That would have been apropos. Mason wants to know, who do you honestly see as being the world's best chance at being the next big star on the level of rock or Cena? So in the wrestling bubble, is there a guy who's going to break through and be the next big superstar who has the best chance? In today's environment, I don't think so. You know, look, AEW is going to have to grow quite a bit. You know, you need momentum. 
You need growth. You need to become a pop culture kind of thing in a real broad base way. I mean, rock didn't become rock. Rock became rock because wrestling was at a fever. Not, not, not just because the guy's got a little bit of talent. We all know that he's gone on to prove that, you know, there's more to him than just that wrestling cat. Um, so I'm not even trying to be cute or funny and take anything away from that. That is obvious to the entire world, including me. Right. It's not lost on me. That being said, I think one of the, I've said this before. I think one of the advantages that Bill Goldberg had, for example, if Bill Goldberg, let me use this example. If Bill Goldberg would have come along two years prior to when he did, I don't think Bill Goldberg would have gotten over. Bill Goldberg not only had an incredible amount of charisma and imposing presence and a great gimmick at that time, he was surrounded by people that could get him over. He was, and more importantly than that, he emerged in a big way at a time when wrestling was at its absolute fever pitch in terms of being a pop culture phenomenon. There's never, there was never a time before it, and there has never been a time since then in, in, in terms of the popularity of the genre across the board. And it makes it easier to become that next big star when you're operating in an environment where you don't, don't take this literally, but you can almost do no wrong. If you're in an environment where you can almost do no wrong and you do a couple things really, really right, you're, you're on a rocket ship. But when you're in an environment, which we're in today for various reasons, you know, oversaturation being one, you know, the, the proliferation and success of streaming platforms, which have taken away from the overall, you know, television audience, number two, you know, the fact that we're in an environment where we've seen so many things over the last 20 years, it's hard to do something that feels fresh and new today. Whereas back in the mid nineties or excuse me, late nineties and early two thousands, you there were still a lot of things you could do that had never been done before and you could still get away with it. Now everything is different and it makes it all that much harder. But I think when, when not if, when, when wrestling, when the pendulum swings back and we find ways to become more entertaining and em embrace the opportunities that exist. Um, and when wrestling comes back to its fever pitch again, then, then we'll know. But right now, you know, looking across the boards and it's not taking away from anybody's talent because there's so many talented people out there between WWE and AEW and I'm sure even Impact, I don't watch Impact, but I'm sure there's great talent there that has the potential. It's a matter of the market or the industry creating that opportunity by resurging again to a point where, you know, doing something a little bit right has a tremendous amount of success attached to it. Last one, Eric, then we'll wrap this one up. Uh, and this is a fun question because again, I don't think we've ever discussed it. Dan Potts wants to know, are there any other names considered besides nitro or thunder? I think that's kind of fun. Like, do you recall there being other names on a list and, and ultimately picking nitro or thunder or were they the only option? No, th th that was a process. And you know, we did a little research. We, we did some focus groups. You know, I, I've talked often about the focus groups we did leading up to the premiere of nitro and a, a part of that, th those focus groups in that effort was to test different names. Um, 
I don't know. I think it was, you know, Brad Siegel was a big fan of Nitro because Nitro was a fran- Nitro was an action franchise on TNT. So the, the it was the Nitro block, which is all kinds of action movies is all it was. So Brad felt like because of the nature of WCW and, and what it delivered, that it made sense to just call it Nitro as an extension of an of a pre-existing Nitro block of action movies. Um, but we did test other names. I liked Nitro the minute I heard it. I liked, you know, just one word, powerful, strong names that conjured up an image. And I, I think that's always the right way to go. Um, so yeah, calling it Nitro was not my idea. It was Brad's idea. We did test other names, but if you're none enjoying of them, this you candid know, conversation with Eric stuck Bischoff as well as right Nitro now. Did. We, the, you're going to love when Eric gets a case of red ass so we, over we at adfreeshows.com. Well, I'm glad we got I did. two editions it now all, of uh, Eric Fires Back, all where we play clips from famous shoot interviews say, where yeah. people absolutely bury Eric Bischoff. Then Eric gets to respond. You'll hear him respond to Brad Hart. Jim Cornette, believe Mike it, but Graham, there was yet another ECW reunion It's an unbelievably no, fun lesson at adfreeshows.com. This is Here's five years later, 2010. It's hardcore Does justice. Does that make sense to anybody and, uh, other We're going to talk Greg? about that next week. It went down and August 8, 2010 at the Impact Zone. They're one in the same. We've got the FBI working with Kid Cash, John Swinger, and Simon Diamond. Does it make sense? Could you see the absurdity that I'm hearing? Scorpio. No, the idea that Bill Watts gets fired and still shows up to work, passing out contracts, working with Al Snow and Brother Run, who we know is the former Spike Dudley. Greg, Team 3D God, didn't you learn a thing? The it's just uh, so stupid. Raven if you're going to work, Dreamer, work smart. Rob Van Dam Don't work Sabu. stupid. This was it's, such a uh, stupid thing for well, him to say yeah, because, again, ECW it's so provably show. false. We'll talk about and it's the good, not the bad, possible the in the mind of anybody but a delusional fuck like Greg Gagne. on the docket for August. We're going to Man, if that doesn't get you going, I don't know what will. Be sure to check out Eric we'll Firesmack, Volume 1 and 2, available now at adfreeshows.com. Believe it or not, Eric Where, by the way, you would have gotten this show early in ad-free. We'll Catch all the fun, including Zoom calls we'll with Eric himself. With TNA, That's right. No you surrender. too can have a personal interaction with Eric Lots of great Bischoff. stuff as we head It all starts at just $9 a month. Check out everything available right now at adfreeshows.com. You'd be glad you did. And now, here's more 83 weeks. And we'll wrap up the month of September with the 1989 AWA Team Challenge Series. And that's going to be fun for us to break down because these days we're having wrestling in front of no fans, but the AWA innovated virtual fans a long time ago, back in 1989. Of course, it had less than stellar results, but we're going to break it down. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Don't forget, you get all these shows early and ad-free over at adfreeshows.com. And you've had a lot of fun with uh, Eric Fires back. We've had a lot of fun with Locked and Loaded. But now we're trying like a rebooking concept where fans can rebook Hogwild 1996. This is a good idea, Eric. I am so glad you brought that up. I was trying to figure out a way to work that in because <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, it's look, ad free shows is a blast for me. It's it's a, I, I look forward to doing it and interacting with the fans so much, and they're so appreciative. Just the the response has been so positive. I, in fact, I'm going to be making a zoom call. As soon as I'm done with this, I've got uh, a zoom call to do with one of our members over at every shows, but coming up, I think it's, uh, what is it? August 5th. We're going to do on, on ad free shows.com. 
we're going to sit down. Here's what I would suggest people do that want to participate in this is go watch Hogwild 1996, the very first one. Watch it, study it, and we're going to go through each one of the matches. And all of us are going to discuss on Zoom. Hopefully there'll be 30 or 40 of us at a time so we can get a lot of great perspectives and ideas, but we're going to rebook it from top to bottom. I'm not going to, the fans are going to do it. And we're going to discuss why and, and, and how, and what the potential outcomes could have been, and maybe even how it could have changed uh, careers or industry. I think it'll be a really fun time for people who really want to kind of get into breaking down matches and talking about story and talking about all the things that could have been the hypotheticals, if you will, that I tend to avoid, we're going to embrace them. So yeah, check us out over at freeshows.com. I think it's on August 5th. It should be a lot of fun. Let's uh, also remind everybody you get all these shows we're talking about early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. Uh, it starts at just nine bucks a month. There's different perks as you go up the, uh, up the ladder there, but we hope you guys are digging what we're doing. We're working really hard to come up with uh, fun, different topics every single week and give you a more of an experience over at adfreeshows.com. Until next time, he is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey, Hey, It's Conrad. And if you've got a question about Hardcore Justice 2010, ask it at 83 Weeks. And we'll be back next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. There's no better time to say I love you. And the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say, I hate stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection. That is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry. Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for more than two decades. But recently, he's kicked up everything a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, just wanted to give you a heads up. You're wasting money on your single biggest expense, and you might not even realize it. Just ask Brandon in Texas. SaveWithConrad.com. Just hooked him up. He left us a five-star review, and here's what he had to say. This whole refinance process has been super easy. It's been entirely stress-free. I had a good interest rate beforehand and no real need to refinance, but I finally looked into it after hearing Conrad's ads. Turns out they were able to cut five years of payments, saving me about $50,000. Man, Brandon saved 50 grand and he thought he had a great deal. How much can you save? Find out right now for free at savewithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket and we're licensed in more than 40 states so we can help more families than ever before at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? At savewithconrad.com. 
Get your 83 weeks gear at ericbischoff.com and check out boxagimmicks.com, the official 83 week store with new items added weekly. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.